Wow. What's your favorite bit? I think my favorite bit is he comes out and he says, uh, with your kind permission, I should like to read you a poem. I have chosen The Harlot's House, a title I trust will not disappoint you. The Harlot's House. We caught the tread of dancing feet. We loitered down the moonlit street and stopped beneath the harlot's house. Inside, above the din and fray, we heard the loud musicians play the Troyes Liebesherz of Strauss. Like strange mechanical grotesques making fantastic arabesques, the shadows raced across the blind. We watched the ghostly dancers spin the sound of horn and violin, like black leaves wheeling in the wind. Like wire-pulled automatons, slim-silhouetted skeletons went sidling through the slow quadrille, then took each other by the hand and danced a stately saraband. Their laughter echoed thin and shrill. Sometimes a clockwork puppet pressed a phantom lover to her breast. Sometimes they seemed to try and sing. Sometimes a horrible marionette came out and smoked its cigarette upon the steps like a live thing. Then turning to my love, I said, the dead are dancing with the dead. The dust is whirling with the dust. But she, she heard the violin and left my side and entered in. Love passed into the house of lust. Then suddenly the tune went false. The dancers wearied of the waltz. The shadows ceased to wheel and whirl. And down the long and empty street, the dawn with silver sandaled feet crept like a frightened child. Pretty good Beautiful, stuff. yes. Wonderful. You really cleaned up nice after having Michael C. Morona <laughs> over here. I know, because after, after we stopped recording, then we had our own Hans tournament in the basement. <laughs> well, we were, we were before the recording trying to get him to do the flips, you know, with, over, the, over, the, over the mattress, over to the, the, the couch. And then, yeah, we had some... Low ceilings. Yeah, we had... Always a, a problem, those damn low ceilings. Yeah. Mike tried to, tried to finish you off by jumping on and breaking your neck, but he jumped up and put his head right through the uh, ceiling. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, you know, stacking up the pillows against like the walls. Any, any of the corners of yeah. like furniture and stuff. Yeah. So it'll kill ourselves. Mike just likes to throw us in the bureaus <laughs> and get to watch out those sharp ended bureaus or the TV tables and stuff. So we, needless to say, we ruined a lot of our parents. Uh, our parents, your, 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 your mom. I know. Your well, you know, we're only been doing it in my house lately because of the uh, dirty dancing debacle in your still, parents' house. It's, 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 it's probably, what, a year now and they're still mad about They won't let us put it through, you know? And that was right after, either before or after. It all blends together with me that we were doing it in the attic because we couldn't do it in the basement. And you put your foot th through the, f the freaking floor. You know, walking between the eaves, know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's like a movie in and it's, of itself. Like you and I trying to... Find the, a place the to Deanna Blake characters <laughs> trying to do a podcast <laughs> at their parents' house and just completely ruining everything every that, time they do it. That could be a complete making of episode of us, just that what it gets, you know, right when we hit record is the end of the episode, like, you know, because of all the... Yeah. When's it going to happen? Not end? again. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us have to sleep. <laughs> Why? One of these days, we'll, we'll, we'll probably get him on tape. Well, because we usually edit this. We'll keep it in him opening the door. What are you guys doing down there? Enough. 
When's it gonna end? When's it, that's the that's the that's the famous line. <laughs> <laughs> when quote when's it gonna end? Unquote. Close quote. <laughs> My poor dad. And that was we always say people probably listened to us at nauseum, but that was three. That was a two floor difference. We're in the basement. There's the first floor and then the second floor, and they heard us. The, you know. Yeah. But I think it was because of the stairs. That was like an, a young adult sleepover. <laughs> yeah. That was at post-college. <laughs> we were like in our early 20s. Yeah. Having a good time. We hadn't seen each other in a while, and we were up, and we weren't even, like we said, we weren't drinking or, or anything. We were just we were just watching, catching up on the times. Watching movies and catching up. Talking about Buddy Guy. That wasn't Buddy Guy. We were, we were doing our Buddy Guy impressions. Make it so funky, I can smell it. <laughs> that was the old, the old, because I think that might have been, you know, if you think about it. To get back to Michael C. Marona last week, that might have been why, that might have been the same sleepover. You came over like the night before, slept over, we were all in the buddy guy, then Mike came up, we picked him up at the train station, he stayed over, we hung out in the pool Yeah, that might have been been that weekend. You know, that that crazy weekend, so it all comes together that Michael was the, uh, was part of that crazy weekend, going to see Buddy Guy at Toad's Place. At Toad's Place, yeah. And I haven't seen Buddy Guy since then, because since he came out with that blues singer album. He hasn't, he, he doesn't play, he never plays the small venues anymore. He plays, you know, the smallest thing he'll play is like, uh, I was going to say, what's the place up, you know, on 72nd Street there, the, the, uh, the Beacon? Yeah, he plays like stuff like that and he'll bigger. S- he'll still sometimes play B.B. King's. Yeah, on, I see on, that. On, but that, you know, that's a pretty big venue. Yeah. I mean, not in size. It's a small venue. I mean, it's a club. Yeah. But I guess for like, I don't know, it's New York City. So, yeah, still big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, and he plays a lot in Long Island in uh, West um, West Westbrook. What the, what's the hell the name of that that theater in the round? He plays there a lot, which I, I I sometimes go see people at. First time I ever saw him was a theater in the round situation. Yeah, and, right. Like I think in between in the Albany the, area, it was the Starlight Music Theater in like Latham, New York. Nice. <laughs> and John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, whatever that whatever the lineup was at that time, opened for him. Yeah. And then, buddy, what year is that? Man, that's early mid nineties. That's got to be, yeah, I guess early to mid nineties. Yeah, I mean, I got in. Yeah, I guess it's probably like ninety four, ninety five, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, but the way that stage worked is that, um, I guess in between songs it would spin. Slowly. <laughs> you know, like, it would move so that... It wasn't like a carousel. Everybody gets flown so off. That, but, you know, it would move. I don't think it, it moved the whole time, but it would move in between songs so that somebody else would get, like, a vantage point. Yeah. I saw a lot of... I saw Ray Charles in that venue. That uh, was big in the 70s and 80s, because I'm near Oakdale, Connecticut, and Oakdale would do that. And it's... I think there's a very famous Howie Mandel comedy special where that was taped there and he's joking about it because it, it slowly turns yeah yeah so while you're talking you have to you know it's like you're walking around seeing people and then the other place i just said in long island yeah yeah uh, i also saw really early one of the early lineups of the ringo star all-star band just recently or back no then? back then okay in, in that oh. theater like in the 90s in that theater and it was ringo and his son on drums uh John Entwistle from The Who on bass. Wow. Um, Randy Bachman from Bachman Turner Overdrive in The Guess Who. The guy who's like the lead guitar player and singer from Grand Funk Railroad, his name's escaping me at the moment. The, uh, just, Billy Preston on keyboards. Jesus. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty sweet show. He's passed away, hasn't he, Billy Preston? Billy Preston, yeah, he passed away. Holy crap. And John Entwistle has passed yeah, away. Yeah, that's, that's like, an, that's like a... Uh, 
a Chuck Norris like uh, <laughs> you know super group right there. Like yeah, you know? that was the idea. And then every I guess every I think he still does it sometimes. But the Ringo Starr All Star Band is like you know every tour is a different lineup. Yeah, there's one lineup had Jack Bruce. Oh, hence the name of the band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but it's cool because they do like Ringo's Ringo's Beatles songs and Ringo songs in the beginning and the end. And in the middle is everybody else sings like their songs. Oh, that's fun. But it was cool to see like John Entwistle singing hoot songs yeah. and playing the bass, which, you know. Did he write, did, were they doing his songs or they were just doing I like, don't remember oh, what okay. songs, but I think, I mean, I think pretty much Townsend wrote all those songs. But yeah, he, he was there and he played. And That place still open, you think, that venue? I don't know. I uh, know a friend of ours the, who gets named almost in every episode, Dave Hastings. Yeah. He went there and I think saw Weird Al Yankovic. Wow. Same that like, era? Yeah, probably. And Weird Al Yankovic signed a hat. Like wow. he has baseball cap and he was like, Can you <laughs> And he just <laughs> sweat coming off that long but hair. But anyway. Uh, so yeah, we saw Buddy Guy. We used to see him all the time. There was a stretch there. Back in the day. Back in the day. But we're not here to talk Back about Buddy he Guy. His, like Jerry Carl mullet. Yeah, going. and he was wearing that polka dot shirt that matched the polka dot guitar. But then in his he's overalls. In his overalls. And, and he'd come out hammered. You know, he wasn't even like he would get drunk while the show was on. He'd come out hammered. <laughs> he'd start hammered. I remember one, the last but time we saw him. He'd be playing a solo and just walk out the door yeah, of the club. Because he, he has a wireless hookup on his, on his guitar, so he's not tethered, so to speak. So I remember we were standing there waiting for the show to start at Toad's Place. And... That like one of his people, like a utility person, like or they brought out a stool, they brought up a coffee cup, and they just brought some like I don't know, it was Cavassier, and they just poured it in the coffee cup. I was like, wow, <laughs> it was that yeah, thing. it wasn't even like there wasn't a chaser or nothing. And then he came out and he was hammered, like you said, he'll he'll, he'll play for like a, that was the time he only played like a half hour. Remember that last time we saw him, he played like really a really short because I think he was that drunk. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the time with Mike. No, <laughs> but yeah, so he would play and he's wireless, so he he then his shtick is he walk off stage start walking around like in the audience yeah while he's playing yeah and where we were it's standing room only so that was amazing then he would just like open an exit door leave and you're like buddy guy just walked out of place but you hear him <laughs> still on the pa system soloing and he's walking around the venue and then he just shows he's up. come in a different door <laughs> and a different exit door and like you know the freaking exit side the alarms are going off because they're alarmed and he's he's just soloing and he's just and he's swearing up and, you know, it's funny. But, yeah, that's Buddy Guy. People know the, the blues. Which has a lot to do with today's <laughs> yes, movie. Yes, <laughs> it has a lot to do. We, we can make a segue to today's, tonight's now, movie. A lot of people know that Vincent Price was a huge, huge Buddy, Buddy Guy, Guy fan. Who would have known? No, he was not. But he was. <laughs> he might have been. Who knows? He could have been. He could have been. He, yes, but today we're talking about um, uh, Vincent Price, and we're talking about specifically The Last Man on Earth. And uh, we also were able to interview uh, Vincent's daughter, uh, Victoria Price, which was a, uh, she's got a book out called The Way of Being Lost, A Road Trip to My Truest Self. And that just came out about a month ago uh, when this is coming out. And uh, we hope you listen to that because that's really fun, the interview we did with her. And uh, yeah, we're talking about the last man on earth today, Vincent Price. Okay. So uh, I want to know, Dan, because I know that you are. <laughs> this is always how it goes. Got to have to, I'm yeah. going to interview Dion now. Yeah, okay, here we go. Because Dion is, uh, as long as I've known him. Yeah. There's a, a three pr- things you like. Dion likes Clint Eastwood. Dion likes the, the Titanic. And Dion likes Vincent <laughs> Price. <laughs> well, it, well, it's interesting because for me, 
all these things are I, coming to fruition. I, but I think in general, for me, like your you gravitate more towards actors than I do in yeah. terms of I don't know fandom is not the word, but yeah, you know, in terms of following, yeah, idolizer. Uh, or- you know, and, like for me, there's a couple like Bruce Campbell, yeah. and Bruce Lee, who we did last week yeah. for me. The two but, Bruce's, but they're but the, the two. I only like actors named you like Bruce. Stallone. Yeah, I and guess. he was going to be named Bruce, but his mom changed that. <laughs> to I guess that's true. I do like Stallone. You know, uh, I, I admire St- Stallone more for his writing than okay. his acting. But uh, but he was a guy that stayed with you from childhood. Like I liked Eastwood's in childhood. You were teen, yeah, age, yeah you know, yeah. So, that's kept with you. Uh, well. He, from childhood too, Rambo. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I remember seeing Rocky Five in the theater, maybe even Classic. four. Wow! Uh, but uh, Vincent Price has stayed with me since yeah, since yeah. Childhood. So because like for me, I mean, I think a lot of people from our generation, there was like a little bit of a Vincent Price resurgence. Yeah. I feel like in the eighties, probably because of Thriller. Yeah, and then he had that for a minute too. But right before Thriller, he had that the something Ghosts of Scooby Doo where he was on with. He's like Vincent Van Gogh, yeah, and he's yeah. got the. It's like the Thirteen Ghosts, maybe a Scooby Doo or something like that. I forget what it's called specifically. And there's a another movie. I don't know. There's another movie where he does the wraparounds of like an anthology from a whisper to a scream or something yeah. like that. Yeah, he does. A, he did a couple of those in the early '80s, and then he got, because of Thriller, he got the Great Mouse Detective, where he plays Radigan, and then. Uh, in the mid '80s, he was the host of PBS's mystery, the Mystery Theater, like the oh, yeah, like Sunday the, Night, yeah, like Mi- the Masterpiece, yeah, Masterpiece. He was he did that for a number of years, and then I think uh, people might know him too for Edward Scissorhands. That's his last role, True. kind of. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands with Tim Tim Burton, and apparently, like he even because <laughs> I don't remember where I got it. some guy. I don't know if he was a listener. Yeah, but I ended up buying like that video tape. Oh yeah, yeah. Of <laughs> you bought uh, it was like Vincent Price's personal video cassette of like vhs cassette of these segments he would do on entertainment tonight in the 80s so it's like so it's like him timer taping <laughs> you know i'm gonna be on tonight please you know probably telling the record his, tell, probably telling his daughter yeah victoria said <laughs> you know trying to figure the code out you know, with the with the weekly guide you know c3 you know he's trying to, and it was i guess he would do like a, it would be like a a profile for a horror movie. Oh, so he would kind of... He was like the narrator. Well, that's and he would introduce it. And then it was like him narrating this thing about Alien. Yeah. Or Night of the Living Dead. Um, and so I have like the... I have his copy of those of the, on VHS. That's pretty cool because that's probably disposable in a sense of like, you know, who knows how you could find that again. But... Uh, but for for the most part, like yeah, I mean, he was like I knew who he was as a kid. Yeah. Um, but uh, never, never really felt one yeah. way or the other about him. So I'm very curious the connection about, yeah, about your connection. You know, because Dion loves Ernie Borgnine. <laughs> yeah, I got a list. Uh, and I'm all, when we when we cover one of those people's movies, I'm always very curious. yeah. We stop it down, and yet in the become you ask me the questions about it. Um, well, let's see. For me, uh, I'm Dion. That's Blake. This is Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. For me, when I was little, I grew up in New Haven. And I think one of the earliest memories, I it's one of these things where the, the, him as an actor has always been there. You know, it's like you always knew who he was, that kind of a thing. And uh, Thriller, what came out in like 82. So like one of the first, like I got that on a record. 
Yeah. I had like three records my parents gave me when I was little. They gave me like two Cosby records. They gave me like a Transformers radio play record. And they gave me Thriller. And I just played the shit out of that on my Fisher-Price record player. And then they got me the Fisher-Price cassette tape player, which a little known fact, Mike C. Morona from last week's episode, he did like the commercials back in the 80s for that. You know, that unbreakable Fisher-Price cassette. Yeah, yeah. Which I ended up going through like three of them because, you know, I could break it. You, know? <laughs> you can throw it down the stairs. Somebody can break <laughs> yeah, it. Dion over it. Yeah. So they gave me, they gave me Thriller in the, um, in the cassette tape. And I remember the, the night the video premiered on TV, my father telling me, like, you can't be in the room to watch. And I was like, I want to see. He's like, it's going to be too scary. I remember I, I had to leave the room because Thriller was going to be on. He watched Thriller. And uh, the neighborhood I lived in, uh, there were a lot of older people that were like retired in, in, the, in the neighborhood, but a lot of the people my age and younger, I was the only white kid in the neighborhood. So when I would hang out with people, we ever, Michael Jackson was huge at the time. So we were always listening to like Thriller, the album. And then when the Thriller song came out, everyone would be singing along. And it was my job when we got to the Vincent Price part. <laughs> you the white yeah, one. Dion would do, Dion would do the, the Vincent Price rap. So that was like, uh, you know, so I, I endeared myself to it that way. And then... Uh, I mean, this is even to the point where it, it made such a mark on me that it's like I remember I'd walk to the store with my mom that young, and I'd have the boom box, and I'd put it on my shoulder like you'd see on TV, and then I'd make my mom walk behind me, <laughs> and I'd listen to Thriller, and then I'd walk like this. Shrug. I'd move my, yeah, I'd, I'd move my left to right, and this is what I'm four or five, you know? Yeah. So I knew him from then, and then I guess right around the same time, I saw this movie on TV that we're doing tonight, Last Man on Earth, and uh, <clears throat> I was old enough to understand the premise and the plot and, and stick with it. And it was one of the first movies probably to horrify me. It's like I saw it at a very young age, American Werewolf in London. Yeah. That scared the shit out of me. And this movie and some of the plot points in Last Man on Earth I remember seeing specifically, and they just terrified me. And I, maybe that was the reason why I gravitated to him because then, then I kind of got into horror a little bit. I knew who he was, and then... You know, as soon as uh, we ended up moving from New Haven to the suburb of Hamden, I, I was quickly introduced to, like, you know, Universal Monsters and maybe, like, House of Wax. Yeah. And then uh, very early on at that time, I went to the library. And at the library, you know, I was looking for, like, media. And they had, like, the media section. And they had all these cassette tapes of old radio plays. And they had, like, the best of suspense radio play and... and, and Three or four of his suspense episodes were on those tapes. Yeah. So I had those, and I knew, oh, it's Vincent Price because of Thriller, you know. And then, you know, Great Mouse Detective comes out. And so it was one of those things where it's odd. It's like there are certain things in my childhood that I don't. It's, I guess, some people who like look, say, like, if you've been reincarnated, you know things. It's like there's things that I didn't need to be taught. Like, you know, who Ernest Borgnine was, who Vincent Price was. They've just always been there, which is odd. Yeah. You know, Chuck Norris is the same thing. At a very young age, Chuck Norris was on. I knew who he was, so I started watching, you know. So uh, my affinity, I guess, for Vincent Price, just like, and I was, when I was that age, when I was five or six, I thought he was like English because he spoke a certain way. He always rolled every R. I mean, Vincent Price can roll anything, you know, like, you know, it's the amazing. Can roll. <laughs> he can roll whatever, you know, he can roll his R's or roll everything. So, you know, uh, and then as I got older, he fascinated me, you know, his career. And then I, you know, I started to get into him and stuff. And then with old movies and, you know, into like my teens, getting into like James Cagney or that kind of a thing, you know, the, the old Hollywood system, uh, he's always been one I've gravitated towards. But I think probably because of my... Love for like, you know, R&B of that era, Michael Jackson, and then him being on Thriller, and then, you know, him being getting such exposure from Thriller when you're, you know, I mean, not only is he on the album, I mean, he'd done Welcome to My Nightmare in the 70s with Alice Cooper, yeah, and yeah. I didn't know that until you 
showed me that in college. You know that that cut, and that's that's just as good as the thriller. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's freaking amazing. <laughs> it's probably my favorite thing yeah. he's ever done. This is I mean, blackest speech about the Black Widow. Yeah, and it's in that, and then that speech, even in even in that, what is that? Maybe a minute and a half long. It's so amazing. Like it's he's one of these people who like. Uh, you know, it's like when you listen to him doing Edgar Allan Poe or doing these radio plays from the 40s or 50s, it's like it's so, not minimalistic, but there's so much there you don't even realize. Yeah, yeah. And especially with that, with the, with the Black Widow speech where he's like, you know, the different beats he hits yeah. and just his inflections on saying, this is the, my prize, the Black Widow, isn't it lovely? And then, yeah. you know, and it's just, it's just amazing. It's almost like you could, you could probably teach that at some sort of like and then they monologue up, class and then they ended up doing a tv special which just came out right just came out on blu-ray for yeah. the first time which is uh him it's like alice cooper's lie right nightmares or something like that and it's the idea is it's like a tv movie musical based around the album welcome to my nightmare which is crazy if for the time yeah it. for what is that the the mid 70s maybe yeah, 74 I mean, 75 was, i mean this was now welcome to my nightmare was alice cooper's first album as a solo artist yeah it was that because originally the band was called alice cooper and that was his first album after he left the band alice cooper and he became alice cooper yeah um and it's one of my favorite albums of all time but then there's like this tv special and it's him and Vincent Price through the whole thing. Oh, it's not just him doing his bit. No, it's like Vincent Price is like... He's like, I'm here all night. You can use me. <laughs> it's like, I feel free. It's, uh, he, you know, because there's this whole story around it where he wakes up and I don't know if it's a... Who, Alice or Vincent? Alice. Yeah. And then it's like... Uh, and then it's uh, Vincent Price is like the narrator. The DMC. But yeah, like kind of carries him through the story. Oh, that's He's supposed cool. to be like the devil or something. Yeah. Um, so, just I mean, crazy. Yeah, that but that I mean, te- it was like a network television special, and I and I'm sure that helped both of them at the time. I mean, I mean, and you know, that's that's how forward thinking he was, Vincent Price, where he would work with all these yeah. people. And I know? think there's at least one show on that tour. It's not every show. Yeah, he he did it. They actually did it live because yeah, the, the Black Widow speech on stage with her. Yeah, because Victoria Price, she did in 1999 a biography on her father called like Vincent Price, a daughter's biography, and she talks. In the biography, that part she talks about going to that show and seeing that live, you know, and how cool it was, you know. Yeah. Because at the time, she's in her teens, so she's listening to that, and then it's your dad doing that, you know. Yeah, so yeah. That, And then there's a live... And that was considered heavy at that time. There's that a concert like, you know, DVD of from that tour. Uh, was a concert film at the time. It's not the show that Vincent Price does that with. But it's a pretty impressive stage staging of a concert. Yeah. And I think the Blu-ray... Of the TV special we were just talking about comes with like a bonus disc of that of like the the live show of the from the Welcome to My Nightmare tour, which doesn't sound great because that's I think Alice like in the height of maybe in the height of his alcoholism. Oh, really? <laughs> but but, uh, but it's a pretty impressive concert to be- behold. Yeah, like the staging of it. I mean, it's a great album. I mean, it's probably my favorite album is, but it's it's just the whole the whole concept album. It's amazing, yeah, yeah. and then to have him just the cameo come up on it, and I think that was kind of like, you know, he was. Price was into doing that kind of a thing, and that's why 10 years later or so when it comes around that Quincy Jones knew his... There's a story behind it where Quincy Jones knew his, his wife at the time, Coral Brown, through Quincy's wife. So he's like, oh, since Thriller's kind of an inspiration to that era and you know those moves, why don't you get Price? He'd probably want to do it. And yeah. So Price agrees, but see, the thing with Price is that he he was one of these people who, like a lot of those actors of the time who... 
you know, you've got steady work, but always in the back of your mind, you're worried when, you know, what happens if you can't get that next job. Yeah. Especially so, at, that, at his age. Yeah, he was point. in his early 70s at that point, you know. So it's like, um, you know, that, that's something Ernest Borgnine always says, you know, since I know so much about Ernest Borgnine. He'd say like, you know, I'd always say yes to a job because you don't know if you start saying no to jobs, maybe they'll, they'll stop offering you jobs. So yeah, yeah. more times than not, he would, he would do something because he wanted, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, for some reason I have in my head, and you can, maybe you can, uh, say whether this is wrong. I have in my head that he did like an episode of who, like Webster, with his Price? Price. probably. <laughs> you know, you know, like he, would, he would also show up, yeah, and do stuff like, like that. in those kinds yeah, of things because he was so at the time with Thriller coming out, he was so accessible. People know he was doing commercials for like you know all kinds of you know Windex commercials, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. because he and then that was the thing is he embraced that horror image that a lot of people of his caliber say wouldn't or would look down on or regret that they're kind of um, typecasted so uh price gets hired to do the the thriller and basically because you know he's in his early 70s he it's going to be a big deal for him he kind of jumps at it but he doesn't really negotiate a good contract he kind of i don't say he does it for scale but he does it not thinking for thinking of everything it's going to be like the most yeah highest selling album of all All time time. and that he's going to be on the title track of that album so (laughs) anywhere he you know, anytime that sound song is played, he's going to be being played as well. So when that came out, it was huge. He was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm not getting any residuals off of it. And it's like, you know. Yeah, that's interesting know. because I don't know because it's a voiceover gig. I don't know how it works. You'd think it would be He could have. I think covered, he could have. You, you would think it would <clears throat> like the union would have. Yeah. Like the broadcast, you know, there's because now like after AEA and SAG are all one union. Like, yeah. There used to be, you know, SAG was for movies and then there was one for just after like, was like radio. Yeah. Actors and yeah. Play and, you figure yeah. some, you figure the union would have stepped in for him. Yeah. Well, who knows? Something happened. It's a long so, time ago. Yeah. It was in the early 80s. So he was kind of like, not bitter, but he was like, what the fuck? This sucks. You know, I, you know, I wish I could have. So even to the point where he, when they went to go do the, the vi- music video, he tried to say, hey, can I get a little more? money because you're going to be using my likeness and then they just refer to him to like one of the parts of the contract now you sign this away and he's like oh that sucks so when it kind of got known that he was kind of like what the hell michael jackson's team showed up at his house like two of michael's entourage with a framed framed thriller album poster with michael frame saying to vincent thank you for doing it and then two like gold and records like in there and vince's like oh okay <laughs> So thanks. Yeah. So he puts it on the wall and it becomes a briefcase full of cash. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? So he <laughs> it, so he puts it on the wall and it becomes like this like he like you know like this fake altar like he they put candles up like they, they want to worship Michael Jackson but it gets kind of bitter where over the years it's like this thing it's like oh this is all I got from this and then it got to the joke where he used to joke once those allegations came out about Michael Jackson like with the kids and then the, Michael Jackson making these payouts you know Price used to jokingly say like you know I get, Michael Jackson fucked me but I didn't get paid <laughs> you know <laughs> and it was one of these things where you know he was kind of pissed like you know because he you know he felt at the time it's like he could have you know he wasn't looking to, to yeah, cash yeah. in but he thought he should have got a little more of his due but that afforded him like you know, because of that, you know, he ended up getting great mouse detective, and he got all these other things, and, yeah. and then it endeared himself to an entire generation of people that might not have known him if he had not, you know, been uh, in the limelight that that heavily for the end of that song. I wonder if, <clears throat> excuse me, I wonder if like generations after us, especially the quote unquote millennial generation, like or kids now. You know, I feel like there's a whole there's a whole section of popular 
like po- historical popular culture that we grew up like you said like it always being there. like we just knew about it yeah we knew you who know, like, frankenstein was yeah we knew who we knew, we knew freaking we knew boris karloff's frankenstein we knew dracula we knew vincent price we knew we knew peter <laughs> lord they're making jokes on cartoon shows about like that stuff and we get those jokes you yeah know? They're making, like, a, you know and we knew who like chuck berry was yeah and chubby checker and stuff like that um so you wonder if this, this yeah i wonder if that is a bunch of ignorant people don't even know who these people well, are you know and why that is i mean i guess because that was still present all that stuff was still present in popular culture i think we it were was children. i think it was siphoned in kind of like a uh, a siphon in like mainline to us where at the uh, back in those days this is my own hypothesis of thinking about this that there was a lot lesser of a channel of getting media to, to people so i think if there's only four or five channels on a television or there's you listen to the radio and the radio just bangs out this song or these songs uh, it's going to get implanted into your head even if you don't want to you know even if you don't like the tv shows you don't like the music you don't like horror as opposed to now where you have so much choice where you can there's a th- three thousand channels on TV. There's radio stations galore. There's the internet. You know, so people yeah. can kind of live in their own bubble, and never even know that you know you could be a famous talk show host on this channel. But if people don't watch TV, they're never gonna know who the hell you are. You know what I mean? So I think it's a lot. <coughs> there's since there's a lot more um, yeah. avenues to 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 get you know art that people you know yeah. I it's mean, weird f- for me. Like you know, I think like you. Like I don't ever remember a time not knowing who Vincent Price was. Um, you know, I never really, you know, I guess I, I, he never made an impact on me enough to, like, follow him and learn about him and, yeah. or even really pursue his movies specifically. I mean, enough of them were on from time to time. I, I do have a very specific memory as a kid watching The House of Wax with my dad on television, like on cable. Yeah. As I've said in previous episodes like my mom didn't have cable but my dad had cable so when i would visit him either on weekends depending on how old i was and where i was living at the time or once a month i would get to watch cable (laughs) (laughs) and 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 use a vcr but i remember watching house of wax and i remember uh my dad telling me as we're watching he's like you know when i was a kid and i saw this it was in 3D. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, whoa. And you got that thing, which is like, and it was a like yo-yos or the, the oh, with the, the balls the, on, the, pad- on yeah, the, the paddle. Ping ball. pong ball, whatever you call it. Yeah, the yeah. And he's like, and then that was like coming right out of the screen when yeah, he was a kid watching it. And being like, really? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I definitely have a very specific memory as a kid watching that movie on yeah. TV with my dad. And that's a short movie. If you, that's only like, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half, and it gets right going. Yeah. And you that's know? all, you can get that on Blu ray in 3D now. That's of course, amazing. now they don't make 3D TVs anymore. Oh, because that craze kind of. <laughs> but can you still get it to play on a? Does it have to be a three D Blu Ray television? Yeah, or? I think you. Could, I, they, I think most of them come with, uh, you know, the option of. So since they stop three three D TVs, they don't make any three D Blu Ray television products anymore. Like they don't. They're not. They still make the. D, they still make the DVD. They still make Blu Rays that are in three D, but you can't get a Blu Ray a three D television anymore. Yeah. Because I was in panic when I heard that. Because I was like, I have like a million 3D Blu-rays. What happens if my can? What happens if my TV breaks down? Oh yeah, you yeah. They're so disposable now. Yeah, that that was something they never really embraced. But yeah, so I, I, you know, I was just gonna say the other thing about this movie is, uh, and the other big question is because I know the uh, Matheson, the Richard Matheson uh, novel, which is a short novel. Yeah. 
I Am Legend, which this film is based on, is also something that's pretty <laughs> important to you. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, so, like, I, my question is, what came first? <laughs> not not what came first, but, like, was it this movie that made you pursue that novel? Probably because this movie, growing up, like, uh, then when I end up getting, like, 8, 9, 10 years old, the original Night of the Living Dead has such an impact on me. And then the remake of Night of the Living Dead, the 1990 Tom Savini-directed movie, and then going back and watching Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, all the Romero movies, you know, that was like my shtick and like, you know, people liked, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or they liked, yeah, yeah. you know, Freddy or Jason. And I, I liked Jason, but I was a big Night of the Living Dead fan because those movies scared the shit out of me the most. Yeah. And you, know? you introduced those movies to me. Yeah. When we first met. And I, it probably was because at such a young age, I had seen this movie, uh, Last Man on Earth. And uh, then pursuing... You know, then learning that there's a Omega Man with Charlton Heston from 71, which is based on the same work. And then figuring out, probably because of the Twilight Zone, who Richard Matheson was and Duel and Night Stalker and all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, putting all the pieces together and getting, like when we got out of college, I got I started reading some Richard Matheson. And that's where I found I Am Legend and I first read it. And I think I got you that for, for your my, birthday. For one year for my birthday. You <laughs> I was like, oh, it go read me. this. You know, and I did. Yeah. And it it was because uh, it made such an impact on me at the time reading it, like because it's from 1956, but it reads so well, it doesn't seem like it's a dated, yeah. you know, and it's still kind of ahead of its time, so to speak. Um, so I think it kind of subconsciously all played together, so that you know all my interests were on the same street. I just didn't realize that I didn't have like connections between them or parallels. Yeah. So that's probably why then me seeing this movie, Last Man on Earth, at such a young age. Knowing Vincent Price and then jumping to the original Night of the Living Dead and then the parallels there and then having an affinity for Night of the Living Dead and then realizing, oh, this is kind of the same thing and this is all from this work and then reading I Am Legend and loving the short story or short novel I Am Legend. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then opening my eyes up to who Richard Matheson was and all the stuff he's done, you know, Stir of Echoes. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you got me that. It's like a, my birthday. it's an addition where it's like the first stories I am legend. And it kind of confused me because the first stories I am legend, which is like 160 or 70 pages. And then afterward, there's about five or 10 short stories in there. So I remember when I was done reading, I am legend, I turned the page and I started reading the next story. Yeah. And I'm like, it's still part of yeah. that. <laughs> and like, that's weird. This is all weird. Yeah. Jump. What the hell is going on? And then I realized <laughs> that it just abruptly ended. So yeah, that addition I got you is kind of weird how it does yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm not a huge fiction reader. Um, in some ways, I kind of regret that. <laughs> yeah, but you do read. I do read. I, just, re- I, read a lot of, I just read a lot of nonfiction. Yeah. I, I, read, I read a lot of movies about movies, a lot of books about movies and about music. And biographies, do, right? You do yeah, I do a lot of biographies, especially musical biographies and... Um, or I'll read like whole books because you play too. For full disclosure, Blake sings and plays, and he's in the yeah. I just blues find, hall of fame in New York City. I just, I just find I don't know. I just I'm drawn to reading. If I'm going to read, I typically read nonfiction. Um, but so like the only time I I read fiction is when you buy me a book and you tell me to read it, which only or doesn't for, happen much. Or for this, like I read. Uh, uh, do I do uh, oh, Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? I read yeah. that for for the show. We did Blade Runner, um, earlier this but year, since I'm not really year. drawn to it, like it certainly didn't have the, the kind. You know, the funny thing is when I read I Am Legend, um, it certainly didn't impact me the way it in, it impacted you when you read it. But when I read it 
the Will Smith movie came out kind of shortly after yeah. that. And so I had so I had read it before the Will Smith movie came out. And then when I saw the Will Smith movie, even though I didn't love I Am Legend, I was like, "There's so much about I Am Legend that's great that's not in this movie." I know, that, yeah, and that's that was. And the- so watching this, watching this tonight, because if if I had ever seen this movie in its entirety, uh, Last Man on Earth, yeah, it yeah, certainly wasn't. It was before I read I Am Legend, yeah, and probably at the time I didn't know. You know, even though it says in the credits, like based on a book, but uh, you know, it, it's weird because this movie, in some ways, is very faithful to the original book. Yeah, but it also kind of, you know, to me, it it unfortunately, like it it misses the things that stood out most for me about the book. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but also. It's nice to see that it's pretty accurate to a point. Yeah, but then it kind of. But I don't know if what I what stands out for me in the book is what stands out for other people. It also is, I think, doesn't especially with the latest incarnation of the Will Smith movie from two thousand eight or nine. That kind of glosses over kind of the psychological uh, overtones of like the depression and like the like the 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 battle he's having with himself, the yeah. lead character. That you don't see that in the Will Smith version it's more about him and you know and that's some of the stuff i didn't like about the will smith version where uh the omega man version really doesn't yeah. get into that much but the 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 1964 vincent price version kind of holds that to a certain extent as much as it can so you know for in a nutshell in like a paragraph yeah what is what is the last man on earth about in case people haven't seen it and haven't read the book well it's about a guy who's <laughs> the last man on earth <laughs> You know, and then he he yeah, it's this guy who's uh you know he's he's there's a this giant plague this what is it it's a pandemic it's an airborne pandemic and he uh he's the last one left and uh, he's trying to survive and he's kind of barricaded himself in his house and uh, you know by day he's you know uh, getting provisions outside foraging for food fixing his house and then at night he has to take refuge inside the house because these vampiristic zombies yeah come out weird because they're like a weird middle ground yeah and that's what's that's what's that that also was very scary for me the elements of where you see like george romero talks about when he wrote the short story for night of living dead he just was basically kind of ripping off of i am legend and then he says that the the movie the vincent price movie from 64 is the kind of visual blueprint of what he used to do night of living dead and you see elements of that and a lot of people also point to Carnival of Souls. Carnival, Carnival of Souls from like 60 or 62. That, that's that, very influential. Because that has a lot of the same simil, yeah. similar uh, visual aesthetic. Yeah, that's another freaky movie we should do at some point. Very low budget, but still very haunting. No pun intended. Uh, yeah, and and the this movie also, it's 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 kind of like the, the Last Man on Earth. It's, it's kind of the first italian zombie horror if you think about it that way where around what 63 64 a lot of people credit eastwood with being the first kind of american actor going to italy and breaking open the door of the italian spaghetti westerns and everybody kind of went in the 60s into the 70s and i'm not up on my knowledge of other genres but you know maybe they were doing that with horror as well but i'd say price is probably one of the uh, you know you know he was because they made did they make this movie in like sixty one? They, they say something like it was shot in sixty two or so, but didn't get released in sixty four. It's all fuzzy. I don't I don't really yeah clearly. And, and then I heard you know I heard his 
Victoria Price talk about that he was in Rome for nine months. So I was like, why would it take that long? But maybe it was just because, you know, you get a free trip out of it, you know, <laughs> yeah, that kind yeah. of a thing, you know, that, you know, so, but, you know, it was one AIP. The, I mean, the story behind this is the book, the, the, the Richard Matheson's novel comes out in 56. And then he, in 58 or so, writes a script that he thinks gonna, is going to be produced by Hammer. And Fritz Lang is going to direct Somebody it. Somebody buys the rights to it. Yeah. For Hammer. And they tell Matheson that Fritz Lang's going to direct it. So he writes a script, but then with the strict British censors at the time, the British censors say, you can't make this script. This script is too horrific or whatever. So they kind of can it. Hammer doesn't do it. And then Hammer ends up selling it to AIP, Inter- American International Pictures maybe, if that's the whatever AIP is. And then it becomes this Corman-esque kind of a thing where... They do a couple versions. Uh, Richard Matheson isn't happy with the revisions that are done, but at the same time, of it is script. kind of, of the script, but yeah. it is kind of in line with what his book is. And then so he, he keeps his name on it, but he changes his name to Logan Swanson, which yeah. is a play on his like wife's uh, maiden, maiden name, name and his mother's maiden name. And I heard that he, he may have just done that because without a, some kind of screen credit like he couldn't get residuals yeah he wanted the residuals and he also didn't like the casting of Price he said he really liked Vincent Price in the role uh, he really liked Vincent Price as an actor but he thought he was miscast in this yeah and then to, to since AIP grabs it to keep the budget low they shoot it in Italy in Rome and they use an Italian cast and it's Which fairly I low budget it works not I mean not the low budget although the low budget bothers me much less than like every review I read about this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's see it's this is this is gets to like there is certainly a low budget or like feel to it that can't be helped. But for me it's like the people who listen to this podcast and us Yeah, yeah. Like we don't have that be an issue. Like we we can fully embrace that. So people who who come at it and then they trip over the oh this is so low budget it's terrible and it's yeah, overacting so it's like you're not you're that not, didn't bother me at all you're missing not even the, a, didn't even occur to me to have that be an issue for me as yeah. a viewer and I love that it's in that it's shot in Rome yeah I mean it's not you can't really it's uh, not really supposed to be in like yeah. take place in Rome but the fact that it's shot in Rome it just gives it like this weird like this weird visual aesthetic that you don't see in like American architecture and stuff. Yeah, so it's very it, urban so in the seems, urban areas. Yeah, it seems alien or foreign yeah. in some way, and it's kind of scary. And that's maybe one of the missteps of the production where they don't um they don't utilize focus on that too much. The more of the frightening aspects of like the abandoned city and the you know the people laying around, they yeah. kind of brush over that. And you know, and there's certain aspects where he has an American car, but a lot of the other cars are Fiats, and you can kind of <laughs> yeah, tell. And then there's yeah. even like a really crazy UFO looking restaurant, which I forget the name of it. That's that's a real famous restaurant in Rome that he passes by, you know? So when people slag this movie off for the, for the low budgetness, I don't understand. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's low, but yeah, it's low budget. It's very, (laughs) very (laughs) low budget. But you know, what do you, what do you want for nothing? I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It certainly doesn't look any lower budget than night of the living dead. Yeah. Or, you know, like, and I mean, maybe you could have issues with the vampire zombies in this movie as opposed to Night of the Living Dead. But this is really going into virgin ground. You know, there's stuff this isn't really had been done. I mean, there is a movie, which I've brought up on the cast before, which I couldn't think of the name of, called Invisible Invaders from 1959 or so, which I have on DVD, which is very much where the aliens are coming down 
and uh, they're getting into the recently dead and then reanimating the recently dead aliens, and they have a, they look a lot like these zombies or what you see in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah. So there was elements around. We talk about the history of you know Living Dead, where it's like an either white <laughs> zombie. You have like the voodoo. You have like uh, Val Luton's. I walk I think with we the should zombie. Rebrand the entire podcast. You know? where all we do is like walking Living Dead movies from now. <laughs> We could do that. Like every off week, we do a zombie movie. No, you know? just like that's all. We're gonna change the show completely. Yeah, just to completely <laughs> the history of of the, the walking in in order, <laughs> or we can go backwards, which would be even more weirder. Well, you know what's interesting? I mean, because I just said Walking Dead. Like you know, obviously, the show Walking Dead and in the crap the comic books Walking Dead are are obviously very heavily based on uh, inspired by the work of George Romero. Yeah, but. Who uh, kind of set up a, you know, like a, he kind of carved a genre there. Yeah, I mean, he kind of created the modern zombie yeah. as we know it. Uh, but and there's not really a there's not really that in his movies. There's not really, and especially Night of the Living Dead doesn't have any of it. The idea of uh, like going out during the day to get supplies and going to stores. Which you see now. Yeah. It, I mean, that are in, that's in like every episode of Walking Dead. Yeah, because. What, but, but that's in this movie. Yeah, in Night of Living Dead, in, in those movies, it's just dealing with the initial calamity of, you know, the breakdown of society where you kind of get that a little in Day of the Dead. But yeah, certainly yeah. this movie and the book takes place after that's already happened. Yeah. So civilization like already the, fallen apart. Like the movie takes place like three years after the shit yeah. hit the fan. The, the, the book, how the book happens, the book takes place 20 years after it's written. So it's written in 54, takes place in like 75 or 76. But then it takes place in 76. It takes place th- five months after everything's happened. And then the book spans from five months to three years. If that all makes sense, the timeline. Mm-hmm. So the book's twenty years in the future, and then it's fi- it, it starts five months after the calamity. <laughs> <Let's>, we're going <laughs> to need a diagram. Up. We're going to need a big chalkboard. <laughs> give, me, give me a board up. Go give me one of those soap boards and, and, a, and a sharpie. And then, and then and then the book takes place over three years. And then it's whereas the movies are always three years after the calamity. Now, happened. see the thing with the, the this movie, uh, Last Man on Earth, and it's one of the things that I think. I Am Legend, the movie, the Will Smith movie does too, which I love that in the the thing that I really, one of the things that I really like about the book is that he's not a doctor yeah. or a scientist of any kind. Yeah. And for me, like the most- I think he of, works at a plant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. The, and the thing that sticks out to me is that like in the, it doesn't get into it too much in this movie, but he takes it upon himself- and to, for me, what works so great about it is because, like, the madness has set in and the desperation. Yeah. That he takes it upon himself that he's just like this, like, you know, average Joe is going to find a cure for this. Yeah. And he goes to, like, the library. He's trying to and figure and he, out. And he starts reading, like, medical books about how viruses work. Yeah, and it's... it's and he steals all this, like, scientific equipment, the sci- uh, this, like, you know, all the science stuff and... For me, like that really stuck out in the book because it's like for me it was like I said it was like the desperation and this like I have to do something, but As it was almost just, like insanity. Yeah, like, like he knows nothing about this, but he's like I'm gonna find a cure for this. Yeah, and th- th- that becomes this kind of thing that happens. Uh, that could be the next 
step in the Dracula lore that really hadn't been touched on since Bram Stoker is trying to then now explore it in the pseudo-scientific justification for why it's happening in, yeah. in I Am Legend, where you kind of get that sometimes, the rationalization of how, why, in a story, this is happening, you have that here, where he's trying to justify, trying to scientifically deduce, well, if this is happening, they must be vampires, but they're being reanimated, they're not out during the daytime, yeah. so he's, he's, so then he's, he's like, I can't, so... To get into the but in this of, movie he's like a he's like a he's scientist. a scientist and he's scientist. kind of dealing with it and uh, but he doesn't but the movie never gets that far into trying like he's not obsessed with trying to find a cure for it yeah he kind of stumbles onto a cure for it in this movie yeah so what makes this different kind of than I guess the average you have the average movie that you get like a lot of with the John Carpenter fair or the westerns where the guy's stuck in the house and there's people invading the house. Like a Night of the Living Dead, like a real Bravo, like an Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Um, the angle that is in the book and in this, which is kind of frightening, is that the they're not just zomb they're not they're vampires, so they're not just zombies, but some of them are kind of still aware, and it's his best friend outside. Yeah, yeah. This guy Ben, I think is Ben Corbin, I think his name is, and he is this guy who, you know, in in his life he was his best friend, and now he has died. And the rest of the world has died. So what happens at night is these things come and these these ghouls or zombies come and they start banging on his door and they're calling to him. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I find kind of most disturbing. Like in this story, this would be like I would die and you'd be stuck in a house and every night I'd be coming to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like not only are they just the zombies from Night of Living Dead where they're mindless and you can just try to, but some of them are self-aware enough, at least in the book. Where he's there trying to keep his keep his sanity, but he's made a peephole to look out, and the women are like flashing him or playing with themselves, trying to entice him out of the house so they can kill him. His friend is out there screaming his name. So yeah. inside the house, he starts to lose his mind where he's getting drunk. I mean, what are you going to do at the end of the fucking world? He's chain smoking, well, he's that's, drinking. That's the other thing that yeah. you know I mentioned when we got it started talking about this movie that like it's pretty. It's you know it, it in a sense it sticks very close to the original book, but it kind of like I said it kind of it kind of excludes the things that really impacted me about the book, and that was you know he does his friend Ben is out in this movie is outside, but it's just like Morgan, yeah, come outside, <laughs> come on, whereas like it's very menacing, and uh, you know what happens with his friend in the book is like way scarier. And, and like more disturbing, but I wondered. Even see, though, like, I don't think he says anything more. No, he's just, still like, saying just, the same. Screaming just, and yelling. But the way it's presented, well, he becomes the, this foil. Like he has this. Like it becomes this cat and mouse game, and uh, especially in the book with it, where yeah. I think the movie version terrified me as a five or six year old. So I was completely into it. Yeah. And I wonder for audiences back then, because this is relatively new to deal with this. I mean, this is. I don't. I can't say this is the first post apocalyptic film. But it is getting into the territory of the sole survivor of a post-apocalyptic film trying to forage that you see is kind of commonplace today. But then on top of that, you have like the the thing where it's like, so he's going out during the day and he's like, so I remember like when I was little seeing this movie and I remember like seeing him like, you know, take his station wagon and go to the tanker truck and fill up. And then like him, you know, going to the uh, the pit and he's throwing stuff over in the pit and he's got a gas mask on because they have this, there's this pit that's always burning at the edge of town that they were throwing the dead in initially to stop the spread of the virus. And the pit, the pit is still kind of forging. It's almost like a gate of hell is opened. 
So I remember him doing that. And then there's a scene. So he goes to his wife's mausoleum or her resting place in the movie. And he kind of falls asleep. And he wakes up and as he realizes his watch is stopped. And there's this huge, very scary scene in it where he's got to, he's like, shit, you know, I got to get back to the house. It's dark out. They're out. And in the movie, like when he comes out, there's this really scary kind of, ah, like the soundtrack, which to me kind of shadows what you'll end up seeing, like in the Italian, the spaghetti Western Leone kind of mm-hmm. sound of that. And it's him trying to get to his car and they're trying to, I mean, and I can't just for the life of me, like at the time that that must have terrified audiences. Like this is kind of something, you know, they haven't seen Night of the Living Dead yet. And yeah. him trying to get to, and then he's driving to his house. He gets out of his house, and you know he's fighting them all off. And I mean, it's it is melodramatic because you know at, at the time, and it's you could say it's over at whatever. And then him getting into the house is just to me. It, I found that so terrifying, and the whole aspect of that it's his best friend that's outside, and then it's his best friend that's like you know, come on out and be one of us, or you know, it's, and that yeah, yeah, and it yeah. leads him to all the down this avenue of. Of drinking despondency he's he, he's he, at one point he opens the door in the book and he he starts shooting them you know as much as he can and then you know they attack him and he's like what am i doing and he shuts it and then he'll wake up in the morning and there'll be a couple dead bodies because they never talk to each other he says and they they'll sometimes attack the uh the weakest one there and they'll, they'll drain the blood so he's got every morning get up and he's got to like fix his house of anything that's come off and he takes the bodies and he burnt, goes to the pit and burns them and then he's trying to rationalize why he's like they must be stupid because they haven't tried to burn his house down yet but some of them can talk and you know and he's trying to find the evolution of like you know some of them will have the plague and then turn while some will like you know, will die and they will come back and they're kind of like the reanimated zombies yeah well so there is a level of intelligence for some of them and then he what he starts taking upon himself he's like well well uh, I don't know how thoughtful of an idea this is, but for him, it's rational. He's going to just start, you know, grid mapping the city and going with a stake, and he's making stakes in his house, and he's by day trying to find where they live, and he's staking them because his, I guess, he's rationale. He's hunting them. Right? Yeah, during the day because his rationale is he'll be able to eradicate them all and they'll leave them alone. Yeah. And then he can gradually, then he, you know, he's like, I can't keep staking them for the, and so then that's when you say he starts to try to, why don't I try to, kind of figure out a cure for this or figure out why this is happening because he's realizing there's this kind of um thing that's it's they've the 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 the, whatever the disease that they get have they have it has a healing factor so if you if he shoots them or whatever it has this quick sealing ability so so the bodies can take a certain amount of of uh abuse but if he stakes them in a heart because then he also rationalized it, which is really interesting, like you were saying, to the traditional lore. Well, the, in vampire lore, he's like, you have to stake them, and they can't have the sunlight. So he starts staking them in the, the chest. But then in the course of the book, he realizes that he can stake them anywhere on the body. It's not just the heart. That's just a, a superstition. Or he realizes, like, uh, they don't, you know, he's trying to rationalize why would a cross and a mirror freak him out and the garlic, and he starts to realize the scientific, well... He's like, they've probably gone insane because of the madness of dealing with the disease. So if they were Catholics, that is why the cross affects them. But it, a cross isn't going to affect a Jew because a Jew didn't worship a cross. Yeah, yeah. So he starts rationalizing that when the garlic has something to do. So, you know, he starts yeah. to realize that, like, what ha- what's happening is it's yeah. like this, there's scientific answers for everything. And we should mention that, like, some of this is in this movie. But not all of what yeah. Dion's saying is in this movie. Yeah, they start talking about so, it. He's not really talking, you know, just in case somebody got got lost a little bit. It's a Dion's little... not really describing the movie, though a lot of what he's saying is in the movie. Yeah, and it's his journey of trying to f- f- rationalize all this out. And then they do a really interesting thing with flashback, 
where they, you know, they go into his face, and they, they zoom into his head, and they do a flashback. Now we're talking about and the now movie. we're talking about the movie. <laughs> and uh, you have the flashback of how you a know long flash, almost too long. Yeah, and it's it talks about like there's there's been some wars. It's always some after World War Two. There's always some wars, and, be, and then there's this mosquito epidemic, and there's these winds, and then these winds are bringing with them this this disease. And then I like the idea where it starts off. It's like the, the kid's birthday party. Yeah, and yeah. then you know you have them playing, and then like it, it kind of fades to like the fall, and it's windy, and you see the same like playground stuff in the backyard, but no one's on it, and she's sick, and then it kind of leads to like yeah, yeah. you know everyone's getting sick, you know. Yeah, I mean it's the movie's. I was gonna say surprisingly effective, but it's not surprising. I mean, it, it's just, I mean it's you know like I said, it's it's effective, and and it, and I find it very weird to read so many. Comp- you know, bring so many people bring to the foreground that it's like low budget. And then because like I said, when I watched it, when we just watched it, it didn't never occurred to me. Maybe it's because we're used to watching, you know, low budget movies and we've watched just, some crap in our lives. Just, 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 just accepting yeah. it for, for being a movie. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, certainly Vincent price does not Vincent price's portrayal of the lead in this movie is not the lead from the book. And I can understand that the author, even name Robert Morgan yeah, in the movie to Robert says a very different book. kind of character. Yeah. And I can see that, you know, that Matheson might not have liked and I wonder his if that's, portrayal, but it's more the way it's written too. I yeah. Mean, I, was, that, I wonder if it, that has to do with like at the time censors, how do you portray the badness of a character. Maybe this is the script he wrote for Hammer that Hammer said you can't produce because of the censors. How do you, trying to get into that, him, you know, binge drinking every night and these yeah. women outside, like the madness. I mean, I kind of wish there get was some of that more him. of that, more of it. There is some of it in this. I wish, like, it was more about that. Um, you know, for me, like, honestly, like, the the only real flaw of this movie in my mind on this viewing of it is like there's this montage of him staking. Oh yeah, yeah. And I love just, it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> He's just uh, and, you know. and, and, and this is put it. I, I don't buy Vincent Price staking <laughs> these people from like the, that. From the visual of him trying to stake stake vampires <laughs> in this montage. You know, it's it's very uh it's very not uh uh I don't know. There's something about it that's this lacks lacks like the, yeah, the, the aggression yeah <laughs> it's it's funny because it's 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 almost like the melodrama of it it's almost like you have to embrace that like it's the you know i don't know it's like the gravitas of him yeah, in the yeah. role so you have this montage which at one point you can view with with hilarity but the other thing it's kind of like oh you know it's it's a montage and so it's him like you know him it's him walking you, know, you can clearly tell it's on a soundstage you know, and they're probably yelling out like in and some of it's like him with a black background. Yeah, yeah, and he's and he's like walking around, and it's like, okay, look at your book and check off, and he's looking around, checking montage, and you see him, he'll have a steak, and he's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, it's like effortlessly, like oh, and he's he's, like he's, he's so very, affected on his face, he's like, oh, for fuck's yeah, sake, this is it's very, uh, you know, not a whole lot of not putting a whole lot of muscle into it. Yeah, and it's very much just like the the endless cycle. It's it's supposed to establish the monotony and like the day to day of him. So that's like the one thing that doesn't you know, work. For I mean. Me. The other thing for me, which I find silly, but at the time, you probably not. It's just that, like, you know, within the book, he talks about how the house is boarded up so well he only has, like, a peephole. 
But like in this version, it's like it's barely. <laughs> you know, there's like two boards of the guys like looking in, you know, and it's so it's like it's almost like uh, you know like when you board up a house that's like not used anymore. Yeah, yeah. It I, it has that kind of a feel as opposed to like they're smashing windows still. Like I'd be very scared. Yeah, and if he's I was like, in, and he's like not even. I mean, I know now it's been three years or so in the movie. Yeah, uh, since it started, but he's so just kind of old hat to him now. Yeah. But like, I would be like with the amount, like you said, like the amount of fortification that he put into the house is so little. Yeah, I mean, the house inside the house, he's got lighting systems. He's got that. I would, I know. would not be able to just like listen to a record and fall asleep on the couch. Yeah, and not fear <laughs> that they're going to just rip a board off because you know, and it's also funny because like, there's, I mean, there's like practically like two boards on one window. You know, it's very. You know, <laughs> It's also funny because at some point when he, when Dion's talking about in the, in the book, but it's also the scene in the movie where he loses track of time, and he ha- he realizes it's night yeah. and he's got to get home. Why he just doesn't like lock himself where he is, I know, is questionable. Yeah. But okay, go with it. Maybe he just he likes to sleep in his own bed. <laughs> 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 see my own bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it could be the madness, you know, it could be just the, you know, it's just the irrationalness of waking up and not, you know what I mean? It's like, you didn't think yeah, of that. Yeah. And it's just so scared. You just, fuck, I gotta get but home. So he gets, he gets back to the house and he kind of fights off the zombie vampires and makes his way into the house. And, uh, but he doesn't get a chance because, but he doesn't put his car in, the, in his garage like he usually does. Yeah. So they just sit there and they're just like zombies, like just pounding on the car, ruining his car. Yeah. Um, and, uh. And then, like the next morning, he comes out and like they, you know, they they must really be losing their shit if they think like b- breaking my car is going to matter. But then, still through three years, there's this little white picket fence. Yeah, that's I was like, I was like those zombie vampires, they love that fence. <laughs> they, don't, they won't touch that. <laughs> they will destroy anything else in that front yard. But that white picket fence, it's it's only like a like a foot and a half tall. Yeah, but they pristine <laughs> they haven't touched anything just the whole <laughs> they walk around it they don't go over it morgan oh, watch yourself morgan there's uh, little funny things like that when you watch it but uh like i said the fact that it takes place in rome i think is awesome because the... i think it's scary those you know the, the establishing shots of like i don't know how they did it if they just asked, they just shot it in the morning and they just asked people not to like open their windows or whatever but it just yeah, yeah. looks like yeah, you know how they well, did it. It's just—it's so foreign looking. Yeah, you know, you certainly don't it's look that, at it and say like that's Italy because what? But I you think look Blake at it, and you're is, like, especially in the time, it's it's post war, and since it's post war, a lot of Europe got bombed. So they uh, into the f- late forties into the fifties, they rebuilt. So you get a lot of that postmodern kind of a look. Yeah, you know, so it it looks foreign because it's like well, it's, you it's know. one of the things that I also kind of like about a lot of. Especially Cronenberg's early work, because it's like all this Canadian. Even, yeah, even when you watch like his short films from like when he was in college and yeah. stuff, like everything just looks so futuristic. Yeah, but also just like so foreign because you know Dion and I aren't Canadian. And so wherever he's shooting it is a totally new location that we've never seen well, before. And it's, and it's relatively new. I mean, a lot of the, you know, you think of Canada, they probably was, it was a lot of that, those cities were built post-war. So it has that 50s, 60s postmodern architecture And flair. I kind of felt a lot of that. And you that, get that in Rome, you know. You know, when we were watching this movie tonight, I kind of, like a lot of those locations, I was kind of like, in my mind, was making relationships, like correlations to a lot of the things I see in... In Cronenberg's movies in the early 70s, because there's a lot of that kind of that specific kind of architecture that you're talking about, like this kind of like modern, uh, 
you know, kind of architecture. And it's just like, it's totally foreign to me. So it seems so yeah otherworldly. And if, and that I have a <laughs> level, a for me to remember watching this at such a young age and, and being able to hang with it and seeing that. And in, I don't know if in a hand in, in the early 80s, this film fell into public domain. So it was probably like Night of Living Dead. They played it all over the place. So for seeing this and being able to stick with it, and there's a scene, which I think I brought up before on the cast, but in this movie, in this flashback, his daughter dies and uh, his wife gives the their, their burning bodies. So you have this whole scary thing where it's the armies taking the bodies and the gas masks on trucks. And they're, I mean, and then there's even implications that maybe they're even burning people before they're dead. Yeah, yeah. You know, I get the feeling that they're just taking the sick and just throwing them because there's such a fear. So he comes home from his job because Price is still going to work trying to figure out this cure because in the movie he's a scientist. And his wife... And he also doesn't really accept or totally buy into what's happening. Yeah, he kind of he, has a level of... Like uh, he, yeah. he recognizes that there's like this vi- there's like this plague yeah that people are dying. And he's like he's like but maybe he's, we shouldn't send her to school but it's like there's there's martial <laughs> law outside but yeah so there is this aspect to him that's not really understanding not like the enormity of the you know, situation it's, it's, it's kind of like that not him but like the character the fifties kind of you know like the um, you know if there's a calamity it's like oh I, will, I you know it's like you know the ship sinking you're still not believing the ship is sinking yeah, yeah. that's hogwash well there's water here in the boiler room it's <laughs> No, it'll it'll right. This, this ship can't sink. You know, and he's like that. totally dismissing like the accounts of you know that radio reports. Like, and, yeah, like you know, that it being kind of a vampiric thing. Yeah, people are seeing people who are dead, like you know, rise and stuff. And he's like, "That's poppycock." Yeah, he's just like, not so center to school today. <laughs> yeah, so she gets she gets ill, and then she's blind, and he goes to where he comes back, and his wife is like, "I couldn't take it anymore." She was blind. He, she called a doctor. And doctor, like, I called. told you not to call anybody. Yeah, yeah I think he might even sl- slaps her in the face, and then he goes to try to find. And so I, when I was little, I remember this whole scene where he goes to the pit and he's trying to find. Were you the truck from Chauncey Street? And then they're like, yeah. "We don't." Know, and he's trying and he's, he's like you know i need to find my daughter and the guy's like you know uh he's like my daughter's in there and he's like well, well so is my daughter you know and, it, yeah. and it's like the level they go like, oh, like, there's my God. a lot of daughters in there yeah and it's in the mine yeah and that's scary so then yeah. he comes he kind of like comes home completely disheartened and then now his wife is uh is ill and his wife is having the same thing and then his wife dies and then his thing is like i don't want i want to be able to visit you someplace I don't yeah, want to have to. He you, doesn't want to put her in the pit. Where his daughter? Yeah, I, I ought to put you in there. Yeah, I can't do that to you. And and, so and berries are good two feet. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah, he, he finds because in the book that he talk in the book they talk about that like cemeteries are being watched and if people are trying to bury the dead they're being shot. I mean this is the paranoia level. So he drives to like a vacant street, finds a vacant lot, buries her, and then I had forgotten in this movie this scene. And for me, this is like one of the most horrific scenes. In movie history, yeah, and of Vincent Price's history as well, because his reaction—it is, it is very effective, and it kind of plays on what you have later. If there's a vampire movie that came out a couple years ago in the states of the same thing, so he gets home, and all of a sudden on the soundtrack, he's you know he's pouring himself a drink, he doesn't know what to do, and you 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 start to hear something, you don't know what it is, and then you you realize it's his whisper, like let me. Yeah, yeah. Let me, and it's so terrible. And he's like, "What the?" And then he starts, huh? yeah. And then he's like, "You know, who's out there? What's going on? You know, who is this? You, who's at the door?" And then you see that he walks to the front door, and the the front door. And this is what I remember as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I remember the front door, the front door jiggling, you know, and it it flickering, and then I think he opens the door, and it's the yeah. <laughs> Somebody's trying to get in, trying to jiggle the door without success. 
And, and he's, he's hearing, hearing, he's hearing this let me in. But he decides, he's like, who is it? Who's out there? And then he decides to just open the door. Yeah, and he opens the door, and it's just like Zolly zoom up, and it's his dead wife there, and she looks all, pretty good makeup effects for 1962 Italian. And she's got like an, like half of her face, the lividity is set in, so like half yeah. of her face is sagging. She's Because she used to be gorgeous before, and now she's like horrifying looking. And she starts, you know, coming at him, and his reaction, and this is like, probably the how i fell in love with him as a kid it's like that is the there are certain themes in vincent price movies starting back like with uh dragon wick where he, it's the first kind of a movie where he plays that kind of now i guess you say cliche character where he's you know a rich guy suffering from madness and in dragon wick he starts to have these visions of his wife coming back and she's calling to him so you have this kind of pseudo theme in his movies where he plays these afflicted characters where he's haunted by like in the gothic horror movies of the dead wife coming back and i think you have that in the 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 house of usher maybe with one of the corman movies does that so it's this theme where his wife's coming back or he's having ghosts of his wife coming back and in this movie his wife actually comes back you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. it's like like the prophecy fulfills itself and it's like his dead wife comes back to him and there, and it's just just and you if you can Put yourself in that situation, as, as silly as that sounds, and just think of the, the 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 horrificness of that scene of your your loved one coming back, saying that let me in, let me, and then it open the door. It's her, and she comes in, and he's he's like ah, you know, he's got that that, and then she, and then in the book, I think they allude to it in the movie, but in the book he doesn't initially kill her, but he eventually has to stake her, so she wanted you know, so but it doesn't really get explained in the book. But it's enough for you to realize that, like, he tried to, you know, you always hear that with the loved one. I wouldn't kill you if you turned into a zombie. I'd put you in the basement or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I tried out, you know, but then, so he evidently had to deal with that at some, but then he eventually had to stake her and kill his own wife. But for me, that's like one of the most horrific aspects of this movie is that scene, her yeah, coming yeah. back. It is probably the scariest scene in the movie. You know, it's, and then that on the soundtrack. And then I like on the soundtrack that those scenes where you have that. Like the chorus, this the, the yeah. This, the score is interesting. You know, you know. I think what's interesting, you know, there's a very interest. There's an interesting aspect of the plot of this movie, and it comes from the the book itself, which is that you get the majority. You know, for the first act, yeah, which is a sh- a short act. We see the result of the world, where the world he's living in. He the, he's a loner. Like he's like Dion was saying during the day, he has to like fix up the house. He, he, he they don't like mirrors, and the mirror's broken, so he's got to go to a mirror store, yeah. buy new mirrors. He's got a gross. There's a grocery store that he hooked up a genie, so he's got like the refrigerated. Set. So it's there's a lot of practicality of how he's. Yeah, they address the how is he going to survive? Always so you know like the so basically we get like we establish his life. Yeah, the day to present. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then him taking the bodies to the pit, to the pit, and burning them, and and all that stuff. Then one night he's just sitting there getting drunk, listening to the Morgan, and then he starts watching eight millimeter videos of his family, and then that leads us to the flashback. Which I love the video, the films. It's like they go to the circus. Oh yeah, it's all. But very, he gets, it's, it's but he gets cutting. He goes down like two rows, and he's getting and looking <laughs> back. Then nobody. Nobody questioned uh, the intercutting of reaction shots and, uh, you know, clearly stock footage. Uh, 
And then we go into this big long flashback. And I love this, the, the, which I find very forward thinking. You'd see in a lot of 50s TV where you zoom into his face yeah, to, yeah. to the forehead and almost or gets blurry. kind of dollies in. I yeah, think. that's what I mean. I'm sorry. Until dollies it, in. Dollies in until he's. They don't change the focus, so he goes out of focus. Yeah, he blurs, and then there's like a dissolve to the foot, which I find very effective. You see yeah, that? and then we get the long, like the establishing flashback of everything. Birthday party, you meet his best friend, comes over with the presents. His friend works with him. You know, there's this crazy play going on in Europe. We should be worried about this. That would be nothing. (laughs) That's Blake's word. (laughs) Poppycock. Mine's Boulder Dash and Poppycock. So we get this long extended flashback, which is is also... it's, perhaps, it's a necessity, but perhaps, it's chunky. Perhaps a little long. Yeah. But there are aspects of it. I think when the girl's blind and she's like, Mom, I oh, can't. It's, it's freaky. It's, it is very, it's very unsettling. Yeah, and he doesn't know what to do, and it's like you're the man and of the house. I, and, and, I th- and I think even when he goes to like his lab and they only have the one guy yeah. left. And that guy who uh, I wanted to tell you, that guy. He's in. Double Bird. team. He's in your Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, Dennis Rodman double team movie. <laughs> that guy? Yeah, that guy. He uh, might, he might Lem, also be Lembaldo Ragona. That guy um, is in double team, so and, he, and he's in a couple of movies. But yeah, that was on his roster. There's an that I think it's that guy is in another movie, The Bird with Crystal Plumage by Dario Argento. And then there's no coincidence there. And the guy that plays uh, Ben Ben yeah. is in uh, Kill Baby Kill. By Mario Bava, just like a couple years later. Yeah. So these are established actors. That yeah. And even though the, the director uh, got like two directors yeah, for some reason. He's only. Uh, oh, I, I I said the director's name Lombardo Ragona. Uh, that's the Italian director. He's only done like four things. But Sidney uh, Sakao people slag off in these reviews that like he did such a horrible job with this movie. Uh, he's got some credits on him. But yeah, but that guy, that one guy is in a bunch of stuff, and I misnamed him. Maybe his name is Giacomo Rossa Stewart. I think it's Umberto Rajo. Is that him? Rejo. Okay. But yeah, he's in double team. So anyway, but yeah, so he goes to the thing, and he's the only one left. Yeah. And he goes yeah, to the Mercer Institute. Here. <laughs> yeah, and then the professor who owns the Institute, Mr. Mercer, is like, you know, it's only you and me left. We've got to keep on with the work. But... Uh, so then there's like this, and then you go, they're supposed to go to the court for some reason. But anyway, there's, there's this long flashback. And then we come back out of the flashback, and then it's kind of more this. When does the girl show up? Well, then then he, he comes out of the, he's done with the flashback, and then he's, I think, one day and he's then he doing day to day. Yeah, he's, then he finds whole, the dog. There's a whole thing with a dog. And the dog in the book is just, it, this is where it gets different from, I liked what they did with the um, 2008 um uh, with Will Smith movie where he has the dog in tandem for the whole movie and then that scene that happens with with the dog is it works great in yeah, the 2008 effective. movie very very sad and this movie and in the book it's very effective where you know he, he, he's been alone for so long and all of a sudden he wakes up one morning there's a dog outside so there's this whole chapter in the book and we should have probably said this to you at the beginning that we're going to spoil the crap out of this. So <laughs> if you want to go read this, because there's a huge twist. Since this is Richard Matheson, there's a twist we haven't talked about yet. So we fully recommend stopping down, watching this movie, go reading the book before you finish, because it is like a Twilight Zone twist ending. So he f- sees a dog, and then there's a whole chapter in the book where he's trying to get the dog, and it, there's such, like, he waits weeks to, he's feeding the dog, he's putting it, you know, he's putting yeah. the, the food out, trying to get the dog to come near him, the dog's got, like, a half ratty ear, and he feels so bad, and the dog's limping, and, you know, so then, 
you know, then one day the dog doesn't show up and he's so scared. Oh my God, I've wasted too long trying to befriend the dog. Maybe they've killed the dog. Where's the dog hiding at night? Well, it's a dog. It must find a great place. It must be so scared. So he finally, like one day gets the dog, grabs it, brings it into the house and he spends like an hour trying to calm the dog down, dog scared. And then there's a real sad scene where that night they're banging on the door and he goes in the dogs trying to like, uh, trying to burrow through like the stucco floor because he's so scared and he's trying to say like you're all right you're all right and I think this is the same thing that happens in the movie where it's like you know he finally befriends the dog and then you turn the page and it's like the dog died in a week <laughs> yeah and that's yeah. it and then it's the next chapter and it's just such an effective letdown and then in the movie it's like he realizes the dog both in the book and the dog has the infection and the dog was getting increasingly sick and that was the reason why the dog yeah. was ailing. the dog's so such a small part of this movie but it's in there but the hope when he sees the dog for the first time is effective like there's something else alive yeah. why how is that because in the book there are there are demon dogs but they it, it's they never talk about that in this and then he goes out and uh i think he's just forging one day i think he's chasing the dog is it maybe it's when he's chasing, he sees that there are staked vampires on the ground oh yeah did, that he didn't stake. and they're different they're not wood they're like big like iron yeah like yeah. almost like so i mean then he finds a woman uh which is exactly like the book he finds a woman he kind of coaxes her into coming back to his house you know he kind of roughs her up well you know he's like she's freaked out he's like well, she says she says in the movie that you hit me but i don't recall him like he you know he grabs her firmly her from screaming <laughs> but, I, but i didn't see her hit him yeah like, i mean he was just you know he did one of those physically just, you know shook the shit, shit out of her like you better calm down you know so he brings her home and he's kind of he's trying to ask her questions and then in the book it, it's very effective he starts getting very questioned like how the hell she doesn't have the right answers. Like, where have you been surviving for fucking three years? Uh, how were you... What were you eating? You know, how... Yo, your husband was killed last week? Well, why aren't you more terrified? You know? Yeah, yeah. So, and then it starts to unravel. And then he's like, listen, um, you know, you may be infected too. And then he starts getting his head like, oh, she could be infected too. He's like, I want to test your blood. And then he realizes, listen, you're the first person I've ever seen. Because that's a whole other thing which you can't touch on in the 60s or 50s television or movies is that... He has this whole, you know, he's a man. He's a, yeah. he's a, he's a, he's a fully functioning, sexually, <laughs> you know, he, 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 he longs for the, the, the companionship. He's a heterosexual of a woman. So that's the thing he's got to, he's trying to suppress with the alcohol because at night he's got these women out there, you know, showing them, flashing them. And, and so he's long been able to deal with suppression. Not in the movie though. No, not in the movie. There's no flashing. No, not in the, <laughs> yeah. But this is probably stuff they couldn't do where he's kind of had to suppress his libido. Now that he's found a, a fairly attractive woman who kind of me looks like Anne Margaret in the movie. He's like, listen, you know, if you're infected, I'll try to cure you and we can live together. We could be like an Adam and Eve. You know, we're, we're companions again. It doesn't have to be this way. We can start a new life. And then he, I think he grabs her blood and then she, what, does she knock him out? She knocked him out? No, I don't. See, because I'm getting confused with the book. In the book, she knocks she him out. She goes into the other room and she has like a, she's going to shoot herself up with something. Oh, yeah. And he and comes he, in. He walks in on her. He's like, what the fuck is this? What is this? Yeah. You're on the, you're she on the, like, it's on blood. And she does explain that, like, yeah, so she it's a she, vaccine combined with blood because if the blood feeds, blah, 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 the vaccine. Because yeah. she's out in the daytime. Isolates it. And what she starts to, she starts to say to you, like, and, she, it's, and we find out in this, which is different from the book. We find out in the book because he tests her blood and he's like, you're a fucking vampire. Yeah. And she whacks him over the head. And, uh, but in this, he finds her. And she about to note. shoot up, and basically, it's like she is one of them, but they use this medication to to keep like their humanity. Yeah, there's a huge, they, 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 there's this huge um, 
And uh, she's trying to explain a, to him that epiphany that like you're not the only one. There's a whole other society yeah. of people who we're trying to rebuild society. Yeah, and uh, we're we're evolving. We're we're learning how to. We've learned how to control the. If we take this, this satisfies the bloodlust, but at the same time, this suppresses whatever it is so he can go out there in the day and the sun isn't reactive. Um, the Only the ones who are zombies are the ones who've died and come back reanimated. The uh, A lot of us haven't. They only had the gene, but we've been able to fight through it. And you've been killing. Yeah. And then the big revelation is that, like, we you're a monster. You. Yeah, because you've been killing all of our family. during the day... <laughs> You come to our houses and, kill our, and loved you ones. kill our loved ones in their sleep. And then he's like, but I thought they're all ghouls and zombies that I had, like Ben Corman outside. And she's like, no, some of them haven't died. Some of them have been able to fight whatever. And you've been, you killed my husband, she says to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's like, fuck. But then she like passes out because yeah. she's sick. She, yeah. she didn't take her shot. Yeah, she didn't take her shit. And so uh, then we cut to like he's giving her some kind of blood transfusion while she's passed out on the couch. Yeah, and he, what he and then what he realizes what we this is the telltale that is also in the same in the book. She's like, "Why are you immune?" And he's like, "Well, during the war, he was in Panama. He was bit by a vampire bat, and he his only best hypothesis is that that vampire was carrying. Bat, yeah, was was it bit a vampire was carrying some sort of diluted." version of this virus and it went for a human went for him basically like a vaccine yeah he, he got got awfully sick almost died but didn't his body was able to fight it much like we get our flu shots yeah and was able and then he and then she's like well, what about the bad he's like oh, i didn't i killed i didn't live long enough i killed that fucking thing <laughs> <laughs> well that shit i hate it that was the key to everything you know <laughs> he's like i rose to that thing so that's why he thinks this entire time he's had this immunity is because of that vampire bat. So what he ends up doing is, as Blake said, she passed out. He wakes up. He's giving her a blood transfusion with his own blood. And he's like, don't you see? I'm the key to all this. Yeah, yeah. If I like, have I can this, cure you all. Now that you have, now that you're immune. Yeah. We, yeah. we you and I can start cure curing everybody. And she was able, and he's able to, to do this simple test in front of her to say, look, you're cured. And then he brings the garlic, which is, um, you know, there's a scientific yeah. reason that they don't like garlic. That, something about the smell. Yeah, and it has something to do with the antibodies. And he, he brings it to her, and she... He's, like, rubbing it on her face. <laughs> and she's fine at this point. She's like, oh, my God, I love it. I love the yeah, smell of garlic. I, I've always loved Italian food <laughs> until now. This was lovely. Oh, I've missed it so much because we're in Rome, you know? You know. And then so he realized, he's like, hey, look, you're cured. Now you and I, whoever we cure, we can help, you know? But then she's like, no, 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 we're past that. Yeah, yeah, they're not going to listen to us. Because basically, she's a spy. She's supposed to keep them, him in the house as, like, the militia pulls up. Yeah. And, and is going to kill him. Take him and, yeah, take and, him back. But now she's him. like, she realizes, like, she's like, you got to go. She, she's like, listen, I realize. She her over. Yeah, he, I realize you're, you know, this wasn't your fault, your plight. You were doing the right thing, although how wrong it was. Yeah. You didn't know. You've been dealing with this. And she kind of falls for him, kind of. And she's like, listen, you got to get out of here. And that's what happens in the book. He She knocks him out. He wakes up. She leaves him a tablet to dissect. Explains all this in a note. And she says, they're coming for you. Go up in the mountains. Leave. Whatever. But he won't. He's like, "I this is my house. I've built it. What the hell? It's so my house. I'm so. a house. So then the, this this horde of people come. And the uh, in the movie, they're very much like, they're almost like... like, like SWAT team. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like command, like command troopers. They come. And it's interesting in the book... Uh, he kind of gets scared. He's like, they start, they come to the house at night and they start just laying waste to all the, the people outside that are attacking him, except his friend, Ben. 
And he kind of gets worried about Ben. He's like, no, they can't. Ben, ben can't go out this way. Yeah. You know, these guys look like they're even taking satisfaction in it. And he's trying to find, they're killing everybody, he's trying to find where Ben is. And he sees Ben like up, up, up on a house across the street going up the roof. And the whole move, the whole story, he's been trying to figure out where the hell Ben's been hiding because Ben's always the first one at dusk on us. And that's the scary thing is he'd sit on like his stoop drinking until like the sun's about to go down. And then he'd see rounding the corner, Ben's running for his house. And he'd just have enough time to get back, shut the door, and then it, it starts. So he realizes Ben's been hiding across the street like in a chimney. But these these guys like just take him down. They, they just shoot the shit out of him. He falls and they stake him. And he's like, not Ben, you know. So and then they, they break into his house. He, he shoots a couple of them off. And then in... The movie is, don't they? He he he. He, he opens the door and he just he starts he fires because he, he takes the gun away from the girl and he's able to run right and he, he runs and he yeah. and then and then it becomes and then this, it becomes a big chase scene which is <clears> kind of <throat> where I was getting going earlier when I started breaking it down by like acts which is I think what's really I think one of the really effective things about this movie which comes from the you know generates from the book is that we've got this like lone guy who uh, is just kind of slowly deteriorating into madness of being alone. The Vincent Ca- Price cabin character. Favor. Yeah. Robert the, um, Morgan, Morgan. In, the, in, the, in the movie. Uh, and then by the end of the movie, which, you know, now we're getting to the part where Dion, uh, you know, warned you about spoilers, yeah. is that, you know, and he's by night, by morning, you know, killing, trying to kill as many as he can while they sleep, yada, yada, yada. And he thinks he's doing it for righteous reasons. But by the end, like, of we the, realize, of our story. Yeah, by the end of, and the, by the end of this movie, he's the monster. And we have, like, the, like you said, like this tactical assault team. Yeah, going after like, him. Which means there is, like, some kind of civilization out there that he's com- completely ignorant of yeah. the entire time. It's like. Because uh, he's, he's even said, like, he's like, he's. Tre- I mean, they pull up in, like, army. Yeah, they're on jeeps and stuff. Because he's, he's, he's got a ham radio and he, all he's been doing is calling out. But he's like, even in the book, he's like, you know, am I, I can't be the only one left. You know, there's got to be more like me. But for all I know, I'm the only one left in the distance I can go. Yeah. Because he can only get. And then you got to remember, he's. He's kind of staying tethered to his house, so he's only going as far as he can to come back to go to. You know, I, By night, yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem like he's ever spent the night outside. Maybe for whatever reason, he's just too scared. Yeah, so he doesn't know. Who knows? So this idea of like there's a society just over the hill, being that he's, completely alone, being the hunter to a certain extent, and then at night he's just, the hunted, and then an hour later, yeah. You know, his, his context, world is flipped. In the, in the, while you're watching the movie, like it's there's this whole other civilization. He's not the only one. I mean, he's the only like non-affected human, but he's but been he's living now, by himself for almost no reason. Yeah, and now not only he's he's not you know he's been the one guy hunting masses. Now there's an entire militia going after him. And after he's him. like you said, he's now the monster because he is. He's become what they hate because they are the next step in evolution. Yeah, yeah. He is like the kind of last residual of the old society that they're trying to now forget about now. So who? not only do they not care that he's the last one left, he has become this monster demon that they fear. Because yeah. in, the, in the night, which is our daytime, he comes and kills them all, drags them out into the sun, and they fall apart or whatever. So 
they have to make an example out of him and they have to like in the book they take him prisoner and they're gonna they shoot him in the chest in the house he wakes up in a cell he looks outside and there's like thousands or hundreds of people looking up from a square at him they're scared of him and they're like yeah, yeah, yeah. they f- they fear you because you you've been like the angel of death to them and he finally realizes like holy shit like you know this this flip like you've been saying so it's kind of very scary to him and then it's it's kind of weird that there's that change in it where it's like yeah he's now yeah. he's become the you know he's the monster in this story you know and and the only logical yeah. thing is they're like we have to kill you because you know we you know that's how it has to go you have to die because yeah. this is society but in the in the movie they they expedite all that they chase you know, and, them and they they throw a little nod to the the book in terms of the title where she's like you know they're afraid of you you're a legend yeah you know, for coming and fucking just like reaping. <laughs> yeah. And that's the last <laughs> you know, line of the family's on the sleep. And so that's the last line of the book is like, he realizes his internal monologue. She comes in and she, in the book, she gives him a tablet and she's like, they're going to kill you. Take this tablet and this tablet. Okay. And he also, he's got a chest wound that they just, you know, dressed hastily. So he's bleeding out and they're like, you know, we're going to, they're going to, sa- they're going to kill you. Execute like, you. Execute everybody. You. So take this tablet. And I don't know if the tablet is just to get a completely, kill him like cyanide or if it's just going to really just you know get him loopy that he's not going to care but as he's starting to fizzle out in the end of the book before they kill him that you turn the page he's like you know i'm a i'm a i am legend because he's he's a legend he's the last of a race he's the he's a legend to them so that's hence the title like to that to though to the new order yeah he will always you know he's the legend he'll be like in you know uh you know infamous and yeah like eternal kind of as being legend so there's a little hint to that the the movie ends very differently but there is a pretty but it's pretty cool frightening like cool chase scene that like ends ends in a church church. yeah catholic church and they get them on the altar and there's and there's families there and yeah that's the other effective thing is like not only is he chased by the militia by the time he gets to the church like just like the 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 women folk and the children i guess he's now in their the, yeah. the parameters he's, of their city or he's whatever now wandered into their s- surroundings or and so they kind of they pit, like they kind of corner him in like all the altar of the church yeah and he's, and he's surrounded of, by and he's screaming and he's like you know like, you're the freaks yeah not me and it's one of those kind of crazy situations like i'm not the one you're the one and then they somebody throws a harpoon and impales him and it's very much that's how the the other movie the omega man ends spoiler alert is the same kind of a thing where, you know, he's kind of dying at the last minute and he's like, I'm, it's not me, it's you. And then he kind of just dies. And then that's the end of it where it's just, you know, yeah. you fade back on it. And, the, you know, it's... The, and then the, we see what's her, what's the Ruth? Yeah, Ruth. Who's the female character that we're talking about. And then, then we, I think then we just, like, follow her out of the church, right? Like, she just, like, walks... Yeah. and out. She she gets there just to, like, witness it. Time yeah. to witness it. And, and she kind of, and she's kind of the one who realizes, along with him, the the consequences of the whole, yeah. the the irony of the whole situation. So she's kind of maybe a little shell shock or whatever. She yeah. we follow her I mean, out. I think she's it's like the impact, the emotional impact yeah. of what's happened, and that's how the, where the movie kind of ends. Uh, you know, dun dun dun. You know, like the end. Um, but it's just the impact of this, uh, of in the sense of that it, you know, Romero not only saying that he. Uh, it was inspired a, by the book, but a, you can tell that there's not a, there's certainly a visual aesthetic that's very reminiscent and, of Night of Living Dead. And he also talks about the neighbor we're talking about here, Ben Cor- Corbin, I think his name that's is. That's the reason why he named him Ben. Yeah, his name, reason he named the African-American the lead in Night of Living Dead, Ben, is, is a homage to this. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other... But it's it's weird because you have... It, it is like a, a, a two-lane highway where 
this is very much the next step in vampirism, the vampire books. You've had Dracula for how many years? Here's a new take on vampires. But also on the other side is this is a new, we're going into the zombies. This is, they're, they're basically reanimated corpses. Yeah. And not all of them can talk. And, you know, so there's, a, there's an element of, of psychological horror here. Um, before we wrap up, I should have did this at the beginning of the cast, but I wanted to give a, a slight little background on, on Vincent Price that I don't think a lot of people know, where this goes back to Vincent Price's great-grandfather, who's also Vincent Price. Was Van Helsing. <laughs> was fucking Van Helsing. <laughs> and he was taking vampires left and right. No, he was a food conglomerate. And his, 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 his name, Vincent Price, in the 1900 was a household name. And he had this big food company, and he created baking powder. And, okay. and then um, his grand, his father. So uh, not like Arm and Hammer. No, the, the it's, other it's, one. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's the, <laughs> it's, it's the price price uh, baking powder. So uh, they move to St. Louis uh, at the turn of the century because there's going to be the uh, the Olympics there and there's going to be the um, World's Fair there. So they go there to capitalize on you know everyone going to be in the town and that's where Vincent's born there in 2000 or in 1911 uh, <laughs> yeah, holy crap uh, and what ends up happening is in the 1890s there is a there is a, a crash of uh, you know like a, a economic crash and his father's at Yale at the time he gets pulled back the George Bailey kind of it's a wonderful lifestyle you got to come you know run one of the companies and his and his the Prince, Vincent Price's father is put into um power and he he oversees the candy company and he becomes this big candy thing and he patents extract you know like you get like vanilla extract yeah, and all yeah. That. yeah that so that's also from the family they they patent this kind of a thing so then when vincent's born 1911 or so this family is known for that it's a candy company the price candy company is this huge big thing so he ends up you know coming to and he goes to yale and he's a yale man and he he has this big love for art history and he only ends up going to England. He goes to England to, 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 to maybe go to grad school to learn about art history because he loves art. And he only gets a job, you know, like they're just auditioning happenstance at a play. And he auditions and he gets the job in a play and he just happens to fall into acting and loves it and he comes back here. So it's all just happenstance that he, you know, ends up acting. But because of his love of art, he ends up using his acting job to pay the bills and to, to necessitate him to be able to go and collect and become this speaker. So he, and so people may know him from say, uh, just his acting, but he had this huge imprint on the art world where he would do these tours, especially in the seventies. He would tour like 65 days a year. He would tour 60 days doing lectures, 60 day lectures. He, uh, put out cooking books. So he was, he was very big in the art history world as well as in the cooking world, doing gourmet cookbooks and stuff like that, that he put out with his wife. So it's very interesting. But uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, he's one of these people who, unlike a lot of the other people, didn't regret being pigeonholed. He's like, work is work, and if people have an affinity for me for doing this, you know, this is how I'm gonna, you know, you know, if people are gonna know me for this, I'm gonna embrace it. You yeah, know? yeah. So it's nice, and we urge you to listen to the po- uh, to the interview we did with his daughter because her book that she just did, the way of being lost, a road trip to my truest self, is one of these. I guess that you can call it a self-help book. And it's not, I would admit, a book that I would have went and sought out because I'm not usually into that kind of thing. But I absolutely love the book and I found it so uh, interesting for us because certainly Blake and I in our off time start to talk about like midlife crises <laughs> and start yeah. talking about like what's the point of life and what's, you know, um, what are we doing? Are we doing what we want to, you know. A lot of the things you find a lot of people our age discovering about with world or having, you know. And that's what happens with her in the book. And her about is like trying to she ends up 
selling everything and she purposely puts herself, uh, be, she purposely becomes homeless to travel the world and get these new experiences to try to find joy in life and find, try to find joy in every aspect of everything, which mm-hmm. I find very uplifting. And then it's almost like a, uh, a love letter to her mom. And she, since she did the biography on her father in, in 1999, I said to her in the interview, it left me wanting to know more about her mom and her relationship with her mom. And this is what this book also is, is almost like a, uh, is a accompaniment to that biography on her father. It talks a lot about her kind of like trying to lay, to rest the demons or the, you know, I certainly have a quote unquote tyrannical mother, you know, who, who still treats me like a child. <laughs> and it's very much like that with her, you know, and, and it's her kind of resolve her demons with her mom and rationalize of being a, uh, even though she comes from a very famous family, she has problems that we all have. And it's kind of interesting to see how she's able to figure those out and uh, work them out. And, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it's very, it's very good if, 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 if you're like us who, kind of start thinking back like you know questioning what you're doing and is that all of it worth it you know it's yeah a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's inspirational i had you this, know you know i don't it's not a road we need to get down uh, especially because we need to wrap up but because we have a nice interview for you to listen to <laughs> but uh, i had this revelation like two weeks ago where i was like you know realistically for my family history and everything like i've probably now lived more years than i'm gonna live you know, like I'm, I'm on the back nine already. Oh, because of the the, the health issues. <laughs> yeah, like, like if I make it to eighty, I'll be really surprised. Yeah, so. you're gonna be a, oh, be a grouchy son of a bitch at eighty. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm in the this is like this is really like midlife for me. Like, yeah, like I'm probably not gonna live as many years. From from today on, I'm not probably not going to live as many years as, as I've you've lived, lived up to this point. And that this is what this book discusses of how to be able to just take a step back and realize the pleasures that we sometimes miss. And it's, it's and that's what I really drew me to it because, yeah, I, like yeah. I said, I'm not usually I read more like you read. I read bios. I read uh, this kind of fiction and stuff. So I don't really usually read this kind yeah. of fair. And it, of course, there was an allure because I was intimately knowledgeable with the subject matter. Yeah. But it is really nice to then see that you know there's people all over the world that have this issue. And she's pretty cool. She's a big part of uh, of, a, of a, a thing that I'm also a big supporter of and, and active with, which is the Hollywood Horror Museum. Yeah. She's like a chairperson of that, and you can frequently find her. With Karloff's daughter on, at horror conventions and stuff, yeah. and and she talks uh, about all very, that, you know, and she's very approachable at those things to talk to. She and, says that like she's not a horror fan, and growing up with a father, that's kind of funny that her father was known for horror, but she her favorite movie of his is Laura, and uh, you know she likes his other kind of stuff, but. When she was first asked some years ago, why don't you start going to these conventions? She's like, why would I want to go to these conventions to see these? But then she realizes when she gets there that it's amazing that the love she sees, that like, you know, people are being themselves. People are cosplaying. People are coming up to her. She says there's lines around the door. She'll sit, she'll sit like in a, at a Philadelphia convention for three days and there'll be lines around the block just to, to talk to her, have her sign her book, and then people to tell her how much her father made an impact in their lives yeah, yeah. and she finds she says like that is so fulfilling and th- th- there's nothing but graciousness she can em- embrace because it's just so humbling to talk to all these people who've either become writers or actors whatever gone into the arts become culinary because of the influencer of her father so even though she doesn't like the horror genre per se she loves doing these conventions and she's such a uh, uh approachable person to be able to talk to and then s- certainly uh 
her coming out and she she's a lesbian in the LGBT community and, and uh, forwarding a lot of those rights and stuff and having to talk about dealing with that growing up or, or having those conversations with her parents. She, she talks about all that, which is really inspirational. And then, you know, having the dilemma in the early 2000s of like having a midlife crisis, what do I do? Losing everything financially and then having to just come back and to the point now where she, you know, yeah. she's doing very well and she's on this endless kind of journey now on this book tour to promote this book as well as to kind of ingratiate and continue Vincent Price's legacy, which is interesting because, you know, we talk about how he's a huge deal to me. You know, you know who he is and you like him just fine. Yeah. And there's other people who may not. But he, I mean, he's been dead for over 25 years, but he still has such a big mark where they're re-releasing his cookbook that they just re-released like two years ago, uh, like um, uh, Treasured Recipes that him and his wife, Mary, did. Uh, that was before the re-release after 50 years was on the top 10 list of most seeked or sought after uh, books out of print of all time. You know, so there there was a huge uh, demand for these cookbooks that he used to put out. You know, yeah. in his later life, so she addresses all that. So it's just it's it's even if you're you know not a fan so much of Vincent Price, or it's definitely a great book to read, especially for us for the day to day problems we talk about. We have, yeah, yeah. you know, just dealing with life and and just questioning, you know, being unhappy, especially in this day and age of it being such a polarizing or pessimistic or cynical society. You know, it's 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 nice. So, uh, and then we thought doing a movie that would mean something to one of us in relation to him and Last Man on Earth, you know, was, was the one to do. So, um, yeah, I love this movie. I hadn't seen it in years because, um, I love it so much. You know, it's just always just been there. Yeah. yeah. So I couldn't remember the last time I saw it. So you kind of take those movies for granted. Yeah. And then you forget when you dust it off, you put it back in, you're like, oh crap, I forgot that. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I found it high. Like I said, if I had ever seen it its entirety, it was like probably before we even met. Yeah. Uh, So it was, I found it thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love Richard Matheson. I would never second guess him. And just, I guess I, I don't, I think Price did a great job in this, you know. I was thinking though, if I was gonna, if I was gonna do, I am legend. Then now, oh now, it's then you know. Aside from this, I would do Bruce Campbell. We'll have Bruce Campbell? <laughs> yeah, but would Bruce Campbell be able to play it off straight, or do you think you'd get oh, into that hokey? So. I think pro. I think Bruce. I think people don't give Bruce Campbell the credit. He wouldn't bring that back. Because I, I recently did an episode of Wrong Reel where we talked about the Evil Dead movies yeah. with James Hancock and. Uh, I talked about how I feel like Bruce Campbell's performance in Evil Dead 2 is among the great cinematic performances of all time. Because the madness. Because he carries that movie. Yeah. You know, a big chunk of that movie is just him by himself. And though a lot of it is played for comedic purposes, he plays that madness really well. And I... And one of my favorite things Campbell ever did was he did an episode of X-Files that where he plays completely yeah. straight. That's great. And he's that so good in that episode. Yeah. And I think there are a few actors that could pull off like the Neville, Robert Neville character and Morgan in this in the in the in this movie. Yeah, it's a hard of, role. like being isolated, you know. Dealing with the inner demons and I feel like there's, there's very there's a lot yeah. of, and I think he could do a really f- fucking great job with that you know and a lot of people gloss over price's career and they'll say like you know he did the poe movies and there's there's a a handful of poe movies that are completely like tongue-in-cheek and there's other ones that are dead on serious that are very good but people will usually cite this movie and maybe uh witch finder general as you know peaks in his career in this era and you know i am legend or last man on earth is certainly one of them uh 
I like the Will Smith version just fine, but it just it's you know it's different. It has I really disliked that they animated. Yeah, the some of those scenes are good. Ghouls or vampires or whatever. Yeah, but they just become they don't. It's like my issue with Disney movies. Like I love the Disney animated movies because I love the villains, and I love when they have the villain has a song, and you flesh out that the villain thinks they're the good guy in the movies. Like I would wish they would have fleshed out the the ghouls a little more. My recollection is they also changed the whole meaning of it. Yeah, it turned into something. Yeah, they had another ending that they shot that was that was a little closer to the original I Am Legend, but it's not sort of. And they just become this these mind. You don't really know what they're they're kind of like mutated zombie animated you know and some scenes it's effective like when he goes to look for his dog in the warehouse and he finds oh all, yeah it just, there's, you know, there's parts of it that were terrifying but as an, but ad- other, but as, like, as an adaptation yeah. of i am legend you know it's mere you know it's very much like uh this story is kind of like what is that the 28 days later you can look at those movies and this is kind of a idea of like you know the that these aren't officially zombies they're vampires well in those movies they're not officially zombies they're people who are taken out with some sort of plague you know so but i'm glad we did it and please by all means you know go check out the um the interview we did because it was hugely informative we get down a lot of uh cracks and crannies about different things and you know it's it's very fun and she's so approachable and it was so fun having her over for a sleepover (laughs) her and her dog Allie. Uh, it was very entertaining. My dog Babe loved it. So, and then you'll hear Allie in the background playing with all Babe's toys. She just keeps bringing us new toys every five seconds. So it was almost like a little vacation for her dog. So please check that out. And uh, I'm glad we finally got to a price because I for for since this cast began, I've always it's these these cards in the back pocket. When we do an official board night movie, which yeah. we've kind of already did, when we do like well, a price, I often point out like Enter the Dragon. There's all I often point yeah. out. Like, I've been wanting to do this movie since we started. So yeah, I've been wanting it's good to do. That a, we finally got to a Vincent Price. Movie. Yeah. Because, you know, we, every time when, when Halloween comes around, we always have so many choices then. It's it's hard to bring. Well, we can have this do this too. But So it's good that we had a reason to do one of his here. So, uh, yeah, check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. We hope you liked last week's episode with uh, Michael C. Morona jumping in for the end of Kung Fu February. We hope that people liked Kung Fu February. We got a lot of good stuff coming out in the future. We have Facebook. We have Twitter. We're on Instagram now. Check our Instagram page yeah. out. Check our regular homepage out because we have a lot of extras with each cast there. Uh, Blake has some stuff going on too. He's written a book. Uh, Score to Death Conversations with some of Horace Grace Composers. And now it's a podcast. Dun, dun, dun. Score to Death, the podcast. Yes, which you can is find. It's available everywhere. Even more places than this podcast is available. <laughs> Surprising, yeah. <laughs> like, I, like, mine's on Spotify. Yeah, and, and SoundCloud. And, uh, and YouTube. Yeah. And iTunes and, and all that stuff. So uh, check it out. It's very accessible. It's, it's kind of just started. We have... Uh, you know, uh, Richard. We've done episodes with. I've done episodes with Richard Band, who scored a lot of uh, great horror films, including a lot of Stuart Gordon films. And I did an episode, a pretty fun episode, where I talked to Cody Carpenter. Cody Carpenter. Little Cody Carpenter. Uh, Cody previ- Carpenter. A previous Sorry. Saturday Night Movie Sleepover guest. Yeah. Uh, he came back, uh, mo- kind of almost at the uh, request of one of our listeners. Was like, yeah, you got a podcast. So you're gonna have Cody on your show because he came on our show. Yeah. Uh, and I said, yeah, sure. So Cody came on. He's got a great new album out called Cody Carpenter's Interdependent Interdependence. This is becoming a theme for us. Where we're, we're we're interviewing the the children, the, the, the children of, of the great, kin. Yeah. So maybe I can get like Chris Borgnine on to talk about Ernie Borgnine, and we can like have you know we can explore and, it all. Uh, so we got I got a lot of really cool episodes of Sweet. that in the in the in the can. Yeah. 
Um, and that's you know, and of course, uh, Twitter and Facebook at Sass, at Sat Sleepovers for us. Yep, at Scored to Death for me, and uh, we're on Instagram at Sat Sleepovers as well. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another great one. Uh, we're going to be as you're listening to this. If you're in the New Jersey area, we're going to be at Monster Mania uh, this particular in weekend, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Yep. Uh, and Rocking if it. You listen to this like three years from now, then you've already missed. Well, it. maybe it'll become. Maybe it'll be at the, the next one. Yeah, exactly. So keep <laughs> in the Cherry Hill, New Jersey area. So and check us out. And uh, we got some nice things coming up in the spring. So we hope you liked what you've hear. Uh, like us, uh, retweet us. You could uh, message us, give us suggestions on what you'd like to hear this year. We got some crazy movies coming out this year. You're gonna love all the stuff that we haven't even thought about yet. <laughs> so we haven't even considered considered yet, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun. Uh, I think it's gonna be a fun 2018. So we'll see you in two weeks. Later. And uh, welcome back to another exciting episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Um, we have a very special treat today. Um, someone's come over to uh, join us on the podcast. I'm joined by, uh, my name is Dion Baya, and I'm joined by Victoria Price. How are you? I'm great. How is everything going? Everything's great. <laughs> yep. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day. Um, in, in the world, maybe not as wonderful, but today I feel very grateful and blessed. And I think whenever things are going on that are tough in the world, I try to at least begin with gratitude. Of so. course, yeah. And yeah. You, you have a new book out, The Way of Being Lost, uh, yep. a road trip to uh, to my truest self, yeah, which is available now on uh, in bookstores. Yes, and exactly. And it's, Amazon. Yep, indie bookstores, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. And Kindle as well, and then it'll be an audio book in May. I just yes, finished. Yes, that was one of my questions. I was yeah. going to say, were you going to record an audio I book? I just did. I just finished it. Oh, that's so lovely. That was exciting. I was telling uh, Victoria before the podcast that uh, I'm a very slow reader, and your book was the fastest book I've ever read. I read it in 48 hours, just sped through it, and the whole time I was hearing you read it to me mm. almost so i was almost like so that was my next thing i was like i would love to hear it again having you you oh, know so that's that's awfully exciting that you're going to do it you know an audio book and yeah i just it. finished recording it and it's interesting i'd recorded an audio book before but not my own yeah. and it's weird reading your own words yeah. you know and but somebody once told me the first time i recorded an audio book that an audio book is the most intimate conversation you can ever have with a stranger and i love that if you think about yeah. it it's so true and i listen to audio books all the time when i'm driving when i'm walking and it's true. It's like they're sitting there. People you don't know are sitting talking in your ear, and you feel like you get to know them so yeah. well. And it's, 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 did you find any, I mean, was it a grind? I know I've talked to a lot of people who've recorded their own books or others, and some people hate it. You got to go in for those sessions, and you're with a board operator, and then you got to get past whatever and then i mean did you f did you enjoy the process of it or? i did because it was the most beautiful place i did it in santa fe and i was in a room that was also a music recording studio and it had this huge grand piano and it had portraits of all kinds of spiritual leaders and all these sort of sacred objects it was a big room and there was a black dog who sat on the other side of the window and watched me record oh, really? and then <laughs> he would come out and say hi to me he was like my sound engineer there was an actual <laughs> sound engineer but he was the assistant and so it was just the the sweetest atmosphere and then during the lunch break i would go out and just walk for miles in the middle of nowhere so it was a really lovely lovely way of doing it it was long though you know you're talking and talking and talking and, and you're talking. doing different um 
you know, different takes, I guess, or you're just uh, yeah, speeding through it? Well, you make mistakes and you have to stop yourself. And then there's always the question, right, of do you do an accent or not? And then you sort of criticize yourself. Like with my stepmother, I imitate my stepmother all the time, but I... I was actually doing things that she'd said, and I thought, oh, that doesn't really sound like her. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter. She's not alive. She's not going to criticize me. And then I thought, oh, yes, she is. <laughs> Wherever she is, she's going, that wasn't good. And we, we should also say that we have with you, too, your, uh, your companion, I yes. would say, Allie. My travel companion, my squeaking travel companion, she is loving it because uh, she gets to spend her Saturday night sleepover with, uh, <laughs> with, a lot with, of toys. with a lot of toys, a lot of dog toys and a new dog friend. So she's squeaking on yeah. a little lamb. She here. was hanging out with my dog, Babe, and we've been hanging out on the couch and she's found all Babe's toys and she's, she loves them. And it's great. And she's such a wonderful dog. She it's, is an amazing dog. Yeah, she I, loves everybody. It's really nice when you, when you can, you know, you, to me, animals, especially dogs and cats are like the truest form of love and absolutely. affection and absolutely um you know as i've gotten older i've gotten more i don't know if i would say like uh, emotional about things like i find myself i can watch a movie that i've watched hundreds of times before and i'm fine but now you know i, I don't know what it is if i'm just because i'm a pisces or with my <laughs> wife it's just I, I i cry at the drop of a hat and it's almost like you know me being a man it's like you know I, I, you shouldn't be doing that but, but I, you're italian yeah, right yeah, exactly. so you have an excuse <laughs> yeah. you have a little bit of so, it would be weirder if you were like me a wasp right <laughs> and then you know yeah and then so and then with animals now, like I've, I've become a very big animal advocate and just, you know, that's a, the downside of social media where you try to oh. do positive things, but every time, say on Facebook, you like something, you see four other things that are horrific or yes. horrible to donate and stuff. The and starving just, dogs, yeah. you know, pictures there. So I know we have to be aware that that's what's happening, but it's just so devastating. Yeah. Or even the animal abuse. It's yes. just, it's just horrible, like, horrible, yeah, you know. horrible. And then you, when you try to sh be an advocate and share it or whatever, then you get, f I get flack from people why are you posting that? I'm like, well, then don't look at it. You know, so it's, right. and my wife being a vegan, but I digress. But <laughs> thank you so much for being here. And um, it's like, I wanted to talk to you about your father, uh, Vincent Price. But then after reading your book, it's like, no, I want to talk to you about, I mean, the, the book was so amazing and oh. it's so, um, it's so inspiring. It, and it was just, and it's it, your quest to, to, to I guess, um, so much is so as to, I guess, come to terms with some of the, a lot of the the, the 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 things you've had going on in your life. And after reading, I read your your the biography you did on your father uh, in 2011, right around uh, the Vincentennial. Yeah, and uh, it was serendipitous because I was working in the city, and then like I would stop reading and I would walk up from where I work up Sixth Avenue to like 54th, where his apartment used to be, and like the the sad story about the cat there. Yes. I'm looking around and. That's completely the entire block's redone. Right. You know, like, so, like, I was trying to find these connections or where I am in Westchester, like, Scarsdale's near us. I was like, oh, where did he live near Scarsdale, yeah. you know? So, w after reading the, the book in 2011, it made me want to know more about your mother, you know? And so, then I tried to do as much research as I could, you know, is she still alive or what age would she be or what's going on? And, you know, and then you look at, we have YouTube now, so you can find YouTube clips, you know? Right. And I, I, I found the This Is Your Life uh clip that they did on your father vincent and uh coming to this book the way of being lost it is kind of i wouldn't say it's a biography on her but it is great for you to expand on that and it's almost 
you versus your mom or, or yeah. in the sense of, you know, coming to terms of what's going on and all that and exploring a lot more of that, which I found so enthralling and so interesting. She was such an interesting woman, you know, and she lived in my head for so long. Thank you, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> she lived in my head for so long in terms of her voice always kind of telling me what to do. And in many ways, she was an absolute gift, my mom, because she really... It's all about the lamb. <laughs> Allie just lamb. wants the squeaky lamb. <laughs> My mom, it. you know, really wanted the best for me, but she also felt that her way was the right way. Of course. And so that idea, you know, I had this little bit of a thing, even though I, I knew that I was different from my mom. I knew I wanted to be different, but I had this sort of hope that maybe she was right. There was one right way. And if I could figure out what that right way was, then everything would feel better and I'd feel safe in the world. You know, I think that's why we all fall into ideas that there is something out there that, it, it, you know, will make the world make sense. And we don't realize until we're much older that the only way we can make sense of things is to go deep inside. Yeah. And so that was really what the book is about. You know, it's called The Way of Being Lost because I had to lose a lot of the voices in my head yeah. in order to be able to get quiet enough to hear my own voice. And that's fascinating because I think that will speak to anybody, even people who don't like self-help books or not wouldn't even have thought that they would be um, compelled to read a self-help book or any kind of a inspirational book. And like... I identified immediately because I have a uh, full disclosure, kind of a similar relationship with my mother, you know, uh. and and I wouldn't say tyrannical, but you know, she's very. This is the right way. I'm the parent. You're the child. Even though I'm, you know, 38 years old, right. she's still telling me you're the child. And you're gonna know, <laughs> right. you know, and it's and she gives me the advice that I don't need, and then she, <laughs> right. and then she, you know, and then she doesn't want to hear, and I don't give you any, you know. So it's I identified a lot with that <laughs> in, in my relationships with my family and stuff, and that's why I think I found it so interesting and enthralling that. Uh, you're so open about it all, and, it's, and I just—I think it takes so much, even from you. I guess in 1999, doing the, your father's biography coming right. out, uh, Vincent Price, uh, a daughter's biography, and then almost your—I um, wouldn't—I guess your journey to this, to, to now 2018, and having this come out, and and even your—you know—how you've evolved or or just you know, um, became wiser with things. It's just, it's a, it's really amazing. Oh, you know, it's interesting because I thought about this yesterday with the book coming out. I, I was so scared when I was writing that biography because my mom was still alive and I was so afraid of hurting the, her. The, the, uh, the biography yeah, of my father, dad, yeah. right? And I was afraid of hurting her. I was afraid that she would get her feelings hurt. I was afraid she would be angry. Of course. All of she, those yeah, things, because right? Because you're, you're, you're kind of opening your heart up, up right? in that situation. Then you don't want her to say, oh, you're airing dirty laundry. Right, or, exactly. Or, uh, you know, you're casting such and such in a bad light. Exactly. You know? Ex and a lot of the, for me, I mean, I was getting emotional too to learn it's not. It's no nobody's business. But you kind of put it out there about the, you know, the, the your parents' divorce. Yeah. And then that and that's just so tough. And then uh, how old you were? Eleven. Yeah. yeah. So it's just that episode in your life, and then everything going on with then your father marrying your stepmother. It's just so. It's so intimate and it's so, you know, I think that's what's also appealing about the book is that you're so open, you know, and no one can't help but feel, you know, gravitated mm. towards it. Mm. Well, you know, it was scary to be that open, but I thought if I don't tell the truth, then I'm just sort of following in their footsteps because they were a generation that was taught to hide, especially if you were in Hollywood, yeah. right? And the interesting thing is last night as, as I was really beginning this journey of talking about the book, I thought... I know my mother would be happy for me. 
And I wouldn't have thought that two years ago. I would have been really scared yeah. to, to write some of the things I had written. But I realized that I had to recognize that my mother was sort of passing on to me what had been passed on to her. Yeah. My mother was English. She was brought up to be a certain way, to hold all her feelings in, to do things the right way. And what was so amazing about shifting... <laughs> that's Allie now playing with a cat toy. That's she hilarious. Play. <laughs> yeah. She's playing with, with, the, the, sp- with, with the, the spinner yes, with the ball. And she's the, uh, having the best time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, we have an amusement park of animals. <laughs> it's, this is like, forget, you know, me coming to do the podcast. You've given my dog the best morning ever. <laughs> it's so great. Um, yeah, so I feel like what really happened was that I was able to forgive her by understanding that she was just passing on to me what she had learned herself. And in a way, I knew that that released her. Yeah. Right? So she actually felt released from all of that. And by feeling released from all of that, even though she's gone energetically, I really feel like now she's on my side. We're on each other's side, which she always was. There was just this idea of right and wrong that was stuck in between us. Like a tension. Yes, exactly. Yeah, And that's kind of, it's tough because, especially for your upbringing, uh, having you know um a, a very iconic and legendary father and then having to grow up in that world i i noticed parallels i read uh joan benny's book about her father mm. jack benny mary livingston oh. and she had kind of a um uh a, a tension of a relationship with her mother not to the extent you had but i did notice similarities where they butted heads a lot god it. and it's and it's it is interesting that to to have that world and you know in the early 60s and then when you get into the the, the late 60s you said like well, you know with the manson murders you right. had a security guard and it's just young for someone you know you since you're a child you don't know any different of, no. of this in this situation than you know hanging out with with the with people and, and other people's friends and and then the world you know you're just hanging out with you know roddy mcdowell and all right. you, know, you know all these people you don't know no i look back on my life now and i think wow what a different life i lived but that was the life i knew and and the kids in my class lived similar lives yeah. you know Jill Martin was in my class, and her dad was Quinn Martin, who produced so many TV shows when I was growing up, the FBI and Streets of San Francisco and all of those shows, and and everything was a Quinn Martin production, and every birthday she had this amazing, like, spectacular spectacle of a birthday like he would rent out a screening room and we would watch like national velvet and then we would go have birthday cake and lunch in uh the walton school room or whatever right yeah yeah and of course she thought that was cool oh my gosh we're in the walton school room but it wasn't out of the norm it wasn't like you came from peoria and you you know you were in the walton school room like you had a frame of reference right yeah. yeah you it was exciting you didn't take it for granted but it was still the norm yeah and then you come out into the world and you go oh wow i i grew up very unusually you yeah. know what what age do you think you i mean i think you've answered this before but was there an age that you kind of realized well i i guess it is a little different from how most people grew up yeah. i think it really took to my 20s yeah because you know even though i li- when i was 16 i was an exchange student in germany and uh, I lived with a wonderful family, probably the best year of my life. They were and, and still are an amazing family, and I adore them. And so I got to be sort of normal, right? Like I rode my bike to school, and I, I got an allowance, and I tutored kids, and nobody knew who my dad was. And, it was, and I just lived in a small town outside of a big city and had a, had a normal life as a German teenager. And I spoke German... I, I learned German quickly and and spoke it and 
And I thought, wow, this is so great. But I still knew I was going back to my real life. Yeah. So it was almost like a vacation yeah. for my real life. And it really wasn't until I, 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 I think really that I was in my 20s and I began to go, wow, you know, most people didn't grow up like I did. Yeah. Because even in college, I went to an elite West, uh, East Coast school and there were a lot of kids who, whose parents were at the top of their fields, whatever they were. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't until I just sort of became like a, a normal person living a normal life that I thought, oh, yeah, right. Most people didn't grow up uh, with a f- parents who drove a Rolls Royce and lived in a 9,000 square foot house and whose father was a household name. Yeah. And then and then they ended up traveling a lot. Too. Yeah. And would you accompany them? Or? Uh, yes. Not all the time. Often I was left at home. But when I did go, you know, of course, we were treated differently. Yeah. You were given the best room in the hotel. My dad... In his contracts, it always stipulated that he got a first-class ticket, and my dad was hilarious. So he would trade in the first-class ticket, pocket the cash, buy the coach ticket, and nine times out of ten, he'd show up at the airport with his coach ticket, and they would say, Mr. Price, you're flying coach. Oh, we'll upgrade you. <laughs> and, he's like, yes. and, and so he would get that free oh, upgrade. Brilliant. Yes, it was brilliant. And, um, and of course, he just thought it was outrageous that you paid $6,000, whatever you were paying for a first-class ticket. So he, he took the money, and sometimes he flew in coach. He didn't yeah. care. It was His legs were a little bit long for coach, but yeah. in those days, it wasn't quite that cramped. Uh, but, you know, he was always upgraded. The best room the, in, the rest, in the hotel, the best table at the restaurant, the first-class seat. Of course. Because people loved it, and he loved it. He never took it for granted. They just loved him. And, uh, and it was good for the airline or the hotel or whatever. But then you go out into the real world and you go to the same restaurant and nobody knows who you are and they don't care and you're seated wherever you're seated yeah. and there you go. And you think, oh, this is... Oh, Allie. <laughs> she's hearing something. Allie, what do you think? She doesn't live a normal life either. <laughs> For two years, she's lived on the road. She's two years old. She's been to 36 states. So I wonder when she's going to grow up and realize that other dogs don't live like her. <laughs> Just like, sure. um, what do you think, babe? And my, my dog's here, too, to, to see us. Hey, babe. What do you, you think? What are you doing? He's just having a mosey, looking <laughs> around. So I, I saw you do a presentation maybe 2004. 14 in New York City, um, and then we went and ate at Sardi's afterwards. That was so fun. And you spoke then about talking about, you know, um, talking about your father and giving like almost like a, a colloquium about him. And then uh, listening to that, it almost sounds like you were talking about, and then the essence of joy, and you know, and you're bringing in the joy of, um, you have a blog that you do every day. It's called the Daily Practice of Joy, or, yeah. it, or it's a weekly blog. Bl- bl- you know, sometimes it's every day, sometimes it's once a week, yeah. at least once a week. But it's your not. diligent, which is amazing. You said you get up on a Sunday morning, yep. and you write, and yep. you're up, you know, even before the sun's up, yep. and that's, 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 No, you know. I try to keep up with it, yeah. yeah. And it seemed like, to me, uh, the catalyst, well, you know, you were on your journey almost then for this book where you're talking about the joy and you trying to figure out the issues you thought you had with your own life and then you taking your dad as an inspiration and then using the joy. And I find that amazing that you said that he was such a bright person and such a... He was. He was so full of life and light and he just... You know, when you're the kid of a famous person and everybody pays so much attention to fame, you start thinking that fame is the most important thing. And we live in a society that just is driven by fame. Yeah, especially nowadays. Yes, it's crazy. And so you think, wow, I'm, I'm the kid of a famous person and people are interested in this and this is what I should be interested in. And it really wasn't until the Vincentennial and then the years following that where I thought, 
But that wasn't what was interesting about him. What was interesting about him was that he was so generous and full of life and full of joy. And I realized that his legacy to me was not fame. Yeah. It, it was joy. Yeah. That he was just somebody who... The definition of joy I like the best is the pure and simple delight in being alive. And he just found that delight in being alive. And these days it's hard, you know, it's hard. You read the paper and it's grim and every day there's some horrific thing happening around the world. And you think, why should we even care about joy? But to me, why joy is important is if we lose our joy in being alive, then we become apathetic and we start stop caring about the fate of the planet yeah we think you know what can i do you read uh i read about this uh one olympic athlete who adopted a dog in south korea to save it from the dog food industry yeah the meat industry there and right and they eat dog yeah and and somebody might say well you know one dog i'm sure there's thousands whatever hundreds of thousands of dogs being killed and there's this wonderful story. I, I went to a seminary, and the head of our seminary, Diane Burke, told this wonderful story about, I think it was a, a somebody, a little boy, I think it was, who was found all these starfish washed up on the beach. And so one by one, he was throwing them back in the ocean, and a man came up to him, and he said, you know, there's thousands of starfish here. You know, you can't save them all. You know, uh, what are you trying to do? You know, how do you think you're going to make a difference? And the boy kept while he was listening to the man picking up a starfish and throwing it into the ocean. And he turned to the man as he threw one in and he said, it made a difference to that one. Oh, you know, and that's such a great story, right? It reminds us that so to show up in joy every single day is to show up in connection and, and love to the planet and to the other creatures on this planet and to be able to to do that is really critical. Yeah, I think that's what I had the connection with with your book um, being in a you know a, a workaholic grind. You talk about how you 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 were a workaholic or still yeah. are a workaholic, and you know uh, a lot of people are in that nine to five or whatever yes. their 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 um, work schedule is. And then the situation with the world nowadays, where it's it's very partisan, it's very uh, um, it's cynical. Yeah. All the negativity you could say is in the world. Uh, it is really heartfelt and and nice and comforting to to, to 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 be reminded that yeah, you know, every day, you know, get up and, and see the joy or see the you know the um, the, the goodness or, or just take something. And I like the idea of um, I know you say you're not a horror fan or or or. Uh, per se, and then your father's right. known for that legacy. But almost when you were talking in the book about the shoulds or the the fears and all, and, and it almost to me came became like a ominous horror movie of you know not a monster like a Frankenstein, but more like an omnipresence of like you know the tornado and twister. Yeah, you know what I mean. Where it's nature, or you know, it's some pervasive the fog. You know, and right? It, and yeah, it becomes absolutely. your own you know monster or demon that you have to, or, or you or people have to try to get over within themselves. I'm loving these ads right now. I don't know what tax company they're for, but they're about the fear of doing taxes. Yes. And they're Oh, each, the monster. Yes, the, and there's the monster under, under the bed. Yeah, under the bed, under the stairs, in the attic. And that's a very is, proper English accent. Yes. <laughs> and that's how we all feel about our taxes, right? Of I course. mean everybody does. We do our taxes and we're like Ugh, oh what a what a horrible thing am I gonna find, right? And so we have this fear around all sorts of things like that. And it's such a clever ad because it's we create this thing in our minds. And my uncle was this amazing uh, 
teacher, spiritual teacher and healer and an incredible person. He used to lecture all over the world. He had the most beautiful English accent. He looked like... Your mother's brother. My mother's brother, yeah. And he looked like um, John Gilgood, but he had... um, uh, uh, Ronald Coleman's beautiful, oh, beautiful accent, just gorgeous voice. And so he would even do recordings and things. So he gave these lectures, and my favorite story was he told the story of a man who's being chased by a horrible monster. And so he's uh, having a nightmare, right? And he's and he's running and running and trying to outrun this monster. And of course, in a nightmare, the monster is always bigger and faster and is going to catch up. And so the man runs down this alley and is realize it's at one of those horrible dead end you know new york city alleys where there's only you know bricks bricks everywhere and nowhere to go right and he's trapped and so he turned around turns around and he faces the monster and the monster comes up and looms over him and the man's like what are you gonna do to me and the monster looks at him and says i don't know it's your nightmare yeah you never got that right yeah right and and that's the thing right we carry we create these nightmares we build these ideas in our head about how bad it is like doubt or fear Fear, exactly the things that we're we're terrified of and then we we let that paralyze us and so one of the things about this book is that I think what I try to help people see or I hope that I can help people see is that facing your fears is actually the most empowering thing you can do and I'm a big hider and I come from a family of hiders and I'm all about sweeping those monsters under the rug or shutting the door of the closet and it has not served me yeah so for me being able to to you know do what my mother would have called airing my dirty laundry to talk about how I face down those fears is I hope a way of showing people that you know and I kind of go step by step through it because I think it's really easy for us to be convinced that we can't do this. Yeah. And, you know, it's taken me a long time and it hasn't been easy, but I feel like, you know, if I can do it, anyone can do it. It so. seems like it's an evolving, even today, it's oh, evolving yeah. for you and, and it's still going yeah, than absolutely. it was a year or two, two ago. Absolutely. It's no, there's no end, you know, there's no finish line. It's not over. Yeah. You know, it's a road trip to my truest self because it's keeping going. <laughs> what is it, Allie? Thank you. Well, you better get that. She loves the toys here. You have the most awesome <laughs> no, toys. It's like just a, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What What are your fears, Allie? What's Allie looking for? What? what? Do you have fears? What? what are you looking for? Allie has some, some deep-seated fears that that, that toy is never going to get picked up. <laughs> it's never going to go again. <laughs> I love how vocal they are. Hey, you are. No. Get the toy. And then, no, the I'm, toy. I'm over it now. <laughs> that is you, and that surprises the heck out of me to think that like your father didn't have. I mean, I'm sure you you I I didn't know you talk about your your great grandfather being. Uh, now they moved to St. Louis yep. before the 1893 crash, maybe. No, after he moved in 19 I think 02 and 1904 was the Olympics, so the early 1900s in time to get there for the Olympics and the World's Fair, which yeah. was a smart business move. Yeah, and he invented baking soda. The, that was my great-grandfather, and then my yeah. grandfather moved to St. Louis, um, and he w- w- ran one of the largest candy companies in the United States. Yeah. And he was the head of the National Candy Makers Association, which it, is cool. It's so amazing. And then um, your your father's brother had... Um, the, the Your grandfather had some business issues. Right. And he had to have almost like the George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life, right. pull your father's brother out. Right. And then... Your your father's brother, your uncle, had to take care of the business, and then yeah. you said your father kind of had that was a 
like a guilt-ridden yeah because he felt like his older brother was this amazingly talented jazz pianist and he had to go into the family business and then my my own dad who was so much younger um got to become this creative person and he didn't feel he was any more creative than his older brother but he was given permission to be creative yeah and his older brother wasn't and and so his older brother really struggled he uh he ended up you know becoming an alcoholic and dying of cirrhosis of the liver because he was so unhappy and my dad you know wasn't wasn't you know able to really ever feel like he was able to help his brother leave that behind did he did um his brother pass away uh in the 60s okay so it was after uh, yeah the parents had passed yeah 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 so and he would come spend time with my dad and his daughter lived just up the road from from us growing up yeah. so they were very close and then my my aunt lived in scarsdale and my one aunt and the other aunt lived in um out in the ozarks outside of st louis well, that's outside lovely. in missouri yeah, yeah. I got to visit yeah. St. Louis two years ago when I was there for work uh, following the political campaign, and, and we were on Washington University. Oh, yeah. So I was looking up to see where your father's house was, yeah. and I was like, it's right across the street. So on my lunch break, I walked across. Oh, cool. And I, like, I looked, and there's a little plaque hidden. Is there? You know, yeah, there's a oh, plaque on the, on the house itself saying this is a part of the historical society or whatever. And then I talked to somebody on campus and they, everyone knows about it. Everyone's, and they really? were like, yeah, you know, uh, Vincent's mother had a problem when this building across the street went up the architecture. The, 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 the <laughs> sort of oh, they do? Bu- they yeah. do the whole story? <laughs> yeah, That's she, so cool. And she, she protested when the, the, you know, because she didn't think it looked good, you know. Yeah. So I was like, oh, really? And I knew none of this. So yes. I, was like, you know, I was like a little kid like that. You know, I found it so fascinating, again, to retrace. See, that's with me. I'm one of these people who love to think about, like, oh, who's who's been here, who's passed, who's done this, you know. Uh, I like to touch things when I go places, like, mm. you know, older building to try to you know maybe feel the power or i love that. the energy so i'm always thinking about like you know every my day you know who's passed by here who's you know who's done this who's done that and uh yeah i just found your book so inspirational to to, to and again just how open and sincere and honest you are about all this well i think you know at the end of the day when you grow up in the era of hollywood that my parents lived in every word that they said was monitored, right? And so I grew up being taught the same way, that there were things you can say and things that you can't. And in a big way, I had to learn to let go of that because I felt like I had stopped knowing who I was because I was so good at at figuring out what my script for the world should be. Yeah. And always my mother's voice in my head saying, you're not going to say that, are you? (laughs) You know, you're not going to tell people that, are you? And I thought, well... What's so scary? You know, what's so scary? And and at the end of the day, I think the thing that makes people feel the most unsafe is when we feel like people are saying one thing and doing another. Yeah. When we feel like we can't trust what people are saying because we're not really sure who they really are. And so I thought the the one of the things that I think made me someone I couldn't trust in myself and therefore feel untrustworthy in relationship to other people was that if I didn't know who I was, how could I show up as me, Yeah. right? How could I possibly show up and say, 100% you can trust me because I know who I am? Well, you know, we lose who we are at such an early age because we begin constructing our identities for the world, yeah, right? Yeah, the mask we put on. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. The mask we put on. Oh, look, we have a whole different color <laughs> toy. How did we get this color? And so, uh, you know, learning to, to know who I am, you know, now I can say to people, um, 
gosh, you know, I, I prefer animals to people, or I'm not very social, or I'd rather, you know, have dinner one-on-one, I don't really like parties. Before, I, I tried to pretend I was somebody who was okay with all of that, and I'm just not that person. I'm yeah. not social like that. Well, I'd rather be that person than show up at a party and be a pain in the neck, or be something like, who's that loser in the corner yeah. who's just like this big negative energy? Yeah. So years ago, when I realized that that was who I was, and I stopped trying to pretend that I was someone else, then, you know, now people don't, you know, they'll say, we know you won't come, we just want you to know you're invited. <laughs> and then every so often I think, you know what, whatever this is, it's a celebration for something, I really want to support that person, I want to celebrate that person. And you'll person. go out of your comfort zone. Yeah, or and, just go, and right, and I'm choosing to do that, but then if I say to someone halfway through the party, I just really want to be here for you but I've kind of like I'm I'm here I'm up to here with social they're like thank you so much for coming yeah because they know who I am yeah. so it's little things those are little things but it's a way of being honest with ourselves <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound effects during this podcast it's, it's little do people know it's just me with it with a, with a quicker <laughs> right, just, exactly. just doing it the entire right, time we don't really have dog toys yeah, yeah at all um but you know as as I don't know as different as you'd say you were growing up in, in your childhood I do find a lot of similarities with anybody when you talk about, um, you know, at a very young age, your mother, you know, I think we all have those uh, memories of when we we're very young, someone being very candid or frank with us, and we interpret it a certain way. Yes. And then it stays with us for years. Forever. Or, yeah. And, and so even though you had a upbringing that was with you know, celebrity or whatever, it, it, I think it's, it is very, uh, it can be a very big parallel to anybody, you know, uh, a, a mother or a father or a, um, uh, a, a adult figure says something to you that you keep with. And then because of that, you build this cocoon of fear or doubt or, you know, and then it, you, your phobias or your anxieties as you get older are a product of that. Absolutely. And you're not aware of it. Or even, even for example, my mother always used to say that I was her best friend and she said it because she didn't get along with her own mother. Yeah. So in a way, this uh, sort of script she had of me being her best friend, but the best friend she really didn't want to know that much about and certainly didn't want her best friend to go into detail or, or be somebody she didn't want her to be. Um, my mother, the whole script was based on I I want to be my daughter's best friend so I don't have the relationship with her that I had with my own mother and in and then that's fake too yeah. right or you know my mother saying something to me like I'm saying this for your own good and they genuinely believe it except it really isn't for our own good <laughs> yeah you and know? they don't know at the time no, but then exactly you know. So we have to start unpacking that and get underneath it and think, well, what were they really trying to do? What were they really trying to teach us or say to us? And I think that, and here we go with another toy. (laughs) This is like the best house ever. Who knew? Look at what this is a... This might be have... Llama with a party hat. It might have some sort of... Oh, the squeaker's dead. My dog will... Or do it until the squeaker's <laughs> dead, and then he's done with it. So that might could be a situation where that this dead ain't gonna squeak. Good, Sorry, that's good. Allie. No, it's good. She can keep it a little it's bit. It's good quiet. therapy. It's like it's like Yay. this is like this is nice like an excursion for her. exactly. Um, I think it's a sheep with a party hat, a sheep with a Santa hat. Yeah, and then with a like a red kind of a tail. Yes, it's very nice. <laughs> Yeah, so I think one of the things we have to really learn how to unpack in our own lives are these things that we've told ourselves are true because somebody else told us they were true. And we have to get underneath. The reason I called the book A Road Trip to My Truest Self is that we grow up 
And at a very young age, we're told to stop listening to ourselves because we should be listening to grown-ups or people who know better, or even people on the television or, you know, news anchors, whoever, these people who are supposed to, I mean, in my day, it was Walter Cronkite. Of course, you yeah, know? yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, that famous, I think it was quote about Nixon, you know, well, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost America. Yeah. Well, we we put our faith in, and we would watch, you know, Mr., I called him Mr. Cronkite, um, you know, and every night I would say, good night, Mr. Cronkite, uh, you know, because... And and he was, even now, I wish I had met him because he seemed like God to me, you know, and now there's so many people. I know, who, it's so polarizing, it's, yeah. Yeah, but but we come to believe that certain people know the truth and we can find that truth out there. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is then we stop being able to listen to what we know inside. Yeah. Because sometimes what we know inside has no explanation out there. You know, for me... I, I I was talking last night and somebody said, the moment you started talking about being intentionally homeless, I could feel my whole body start to seize up. It is a frightening uh, idea that, that, I mean, you intentionally made yourself homeless just for the idea of challenging yourself and uprooting yourself. And, uh, you know, you're over my house and you see that we live like hoarders here with, with, with uh, you know, with media, books and DVDs and, and, and music. And it's, uh, for you to just get rid of everything it's almost like there's the um the japanese book the life-changing magic of tidying yes. up by uh marie kondo uh, kondo yeah. and it, when you were talking about that in, in in your book that immediately brought that to mind because my wife bought that a couple years ago she's like this is what we're gonna do and that was like the scariest thing for me <laughs> right. like what are you talking about you know, <laughs> right. who are you you know <laughs> and so it, it is it is it is not only to have us think that us as a person to take this step on but to ha hear someone say they've started embarked on this journey and you're purposely becoming like a um like bill bixby in the incredible hulk like you know you're waltzing matilda you're just walking around you know traveling the world and um that could be very scary for people out of their comfort zones. It's certainly. scary for me sometimes yeah. out of my comfort zone. I mean, my happiest times growing up were traveling. We had this early RV and and we would go all over in it. And my parents and I loved a road trip. We loved traveling together. But they were also accumulators. I mean, I grew up in a 9,000 square foot house with not one inch of bare anything. You yeah. know, it was packed to the gills. And we had a lot of stuff and I was in the business. I mean, I made my living both as a owning a design studio, being an interior designer and, um, and being an art dealer. And so I was in the business of selling people a lot of stuff, right? And art and furniture and cr creating these very permanent spaces for people. And yet, you know, when this came up and it, I didn't see it as an opportunity. I didn't really want it to happen, but it happened and I felt like the universe was sort of pushing me out the door. And I did that. I had been listening to her book um, as an, hello, as an audio book. And so I, um, I'm Marie Kondo's. And so I came home and I literally held everything I owned. And if it did not spark joy, I let it go. So I don't have a bed. I don't have a sofa. I have a chair that I loved. And it's a beautiful chair. It's a classic chair. It's a, a womb chair. But the reason I kept it wasn't because it's this beautiful classic chair. I had a Dalmatian for 16 years. And my Dalmatian, it, it, the chair is black and white. And that Dalmatian appropriated that chair from the time he was two years old. And he Dalmatian shed a lot. Yeah. And so by the time he was about eight years old, I gave up and I just covered it with a fleece. 
and it became his, you know, $4,000 dog bed. <laughs> I never sat on that chair because otherwise we would sort of fight on it. You know, I would, I would leave the house. I'd clean the whole chair off. I told him, do not get on the chair. And, and I'd come back and it'd be covered in dog hair. So one day I drove out, I drove to the end of the driveway. I turned left and then I tiptoed back and he literally, this was my Dalmatian, he was watching me out the window. He couldn't see me, so he's watching out the window. And I saw him make sure that the car was out of sight and tiptoe back and get on that chair. Oh, that's lovely. And so to me, I could not sell that chair ever, not because it was this beautiful chair, but because it was his chair. Yeah. That's always going to be Jack's chair. It's Jack's chair. And so there was very little in the way of furniture that I kept the art, I kept 90% of it because it still sparked joy. Yeah. Uh, but but very little did I keep. I don't have a bed. I kept I kept a desk chair because if you're a writer, yeah. having a comfortable chair to sit in when you write, as I now know, living all over, you know, in hotels and in people's houses, and I mostly sit in their dining chairs. Uh, and it's uncomfortable to write in, in something that is not a comfortable chair. And so I kept a desk chair. But... There was very little that, even books, I let all the books go. Um, I digitized everything. I am the big fan of the Kindle because I can have a library yeah. with me in a tiny little thing. But it was really hard. The thing that I've noticed is when I first started, I would go to someone's house and I would compare it to mine. I'd be on the road. I'd be in, staying with somebody. I'd be at an Airbnb. I'd go in and I'd think, oh, God, this kitchen it's not as nice as mine yeah. you know and people pay me a lot of money people pay me millions of dollars to build very expensive you know multi-million dollar homes for them so i was also used to that now two years down the line i'm grateful that it is a kitchen i'm grateful that there's a refrigerator i'm grateful that i'm not in a hotel and i can cook like if i'm staying i'm staying with a friend right now and i you know i remember the first time i stayed with her and i was like where's my multi-million dollar not that i lived in a multi-million dollar kitchen but i was spending a lot of time in people's multi-million dollar homes and i thought you know, where's my gorgeous kitchen with the Sub-Zero? You know, she lives in a very modest place. Yeah. Now I go there and I'm like, oh, I'm so happy to be here. I love being here. And fantastic. There's the, you know, I know where the pots and pans are and I know how her stove works and I can cook and right across the street, it's like my favorite little organic store and I can buy whatever I want right across there. And it's changed my level of expectation to just one of gratitude. And I love going to Airbnbs. Everything feels so much simpler because I've lowered my expectations. And and we're not taught that that's a good thing. But actually lowering our expectations just simply to the level of gratitude and love is a wonderful way to live. Get yeah, your that, toy. That, that, that we Get your toy. What's that? Where's your toy? What's it? Best, best place she's ever been. <laughs> well, if we can make her happy, that's <laughs> exactly. we've done our job. You know, we have done our job. Sleepover. She brought <laughs> exactly. her. She brought her sleeping bag. My my dog babe just came out, looked, and just walked back, walked <laughs> away. He just went back in. It's like whatever. Um. So you talk about your father being a, uh, an amazing actor, but then also your mom. I don't think it's uh n- not too much in the weeds, but I think your mom as well is underrated as a almost a chameleon herself because you talk about how mm-hmm. when your father first met your mother she had a Bronx accent and she's English yes. but she and then uh, she would adopt um, uh, dialects or uh, different uh, 
things when she go different places in the world and you said you're you're you've seen yourself doing that yeah with, you know you're able to pick up a language quickly and all that and yeah it, you know my mom was this very unconscious mimic we would get in a cab with her and she would become whatever nationality the cab driver was and it took me a long time to realize that because she'd grown up all over the world so she was born in wales grew up between wales and england and then lived in shanghai and then lived in british columbia yeah. and came to the united states when she was 18 and and traveled all over the world because she was in so many different environments uh, she just adapted. It was her way of fitting in, of not feeling like she was an outsider or a weirdo, right? And when I travel, I find that I do the same thing. I, I try to find a way to fit in. In China, of course, you know, when I went to China back to see where my mother grew up. So here's here I am, 5'11 and blonde, and I actually dyed my hair super blonde. And then I put in like these big streaks of purple and, and, and different colors in my hair because I thought, well, I'm going to stand out in China. Let's stand out. And the kids loved me. They were all <laughs> wanting to have their picture taken with me and I had a bright pink down jacket and, and everybody you know it was fun because color is uh, the Chinese love color and and uh, so it was and I was alone you know I wasn't traveling with a group so I had so much fun meeting people but I would be with these guides I had a different guide in different areas and I would start to mimic them and I thought what, what are you doing that's so offensive and I realized that I was actually just trying to fit in trying yeah. to find a way to sort of speak their language yeah. you know I I find myself doing that and people will you know if I'm hanging out with someone who's Irish by the end of the night I'm speaking right you know and then people say isn't that offensive or for me, and I remember people used to give, say, Madonna Guff in the early odds when she moved to England, and suddenly you developed some sort of, and she's like, oh, right. now she has an English accent, right. but now my wife is English. I start saying the colloquialisms. And, oh, sure. You know, so you pick up. So I find that, you know, that's actually quite, quite truthful to be able to, you know, you, you, you develop whatever, you know, yes. that you're seeing around you, and it's, you know. Absolutely. Even just little things like, you know, when I'm in England... Or, uh, you know, I find that I change my, because my mother was English, my stepmother was English. And so, you know, um, all of a sudden you start leaving out, like you say, in hospital yeah, instead yeah, of in yeah, the hospital, yeah. because there you are and you know that, that th that's what it is. Yeah, I say that to, I'll say that to my wife, which just sounds perfectly fine. But then I say that to a coworker and they're like, that sounded so English, you know. Right. You know, and then like, I'm sorry, I have to kind of like, yeah. you know, change my speak to make sure I'm not right. doing that so much. I, when I was little, I thought your father was English. I mean, so being, many people when did. I was so young, you know, I probably was first exposed to him because I grew up in New Haven. Uh, he had gone to Yale. Uh, Thriller was big when I was little. Yeah. You know, and then I think the first film I saw of his was The Last Man on Earth. Ah. And that utterly terrified me. Uh, the um, Richard Matheson story, I Am Legend. And it was so, f at such a young age, he was with me. And it, it was just, it's so amazing to think that, um, you know, that the influence he had and then get past just being a, an actor, the, the culinary aspects. And, and that became something my wife and I loved to, to just the, you know, hit the, the, the life of him doing this stuff for Sears. Right. Or, you know, just the, the, the his <coughs> uh, love and passion for art. You know, it's just so, and that's something you've developed too. Your passions, you know, kind of uh, mimic his in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was easy to have your passion mimic somebody who was so passionate. Yeah, right? yeah, of course. He was so passionate about so many things, but art in particular. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, there's that book out that's the five love languages. Yes. And I think 
the concept of the book is a really wonderful idea that, you know, if you love somebody, but you're loving them the way you love, maybe that love doesn't land on them because they need to feel love a different way. And I think instinctively, we all know that that's why the book resonated for so many people. So my dad's love language, my dad's religion, my dad's everything was art. And he went to school for art. Yeah, yeah. he went to school for art. And so of course, for me as a little girl, if you know that the person you love the most loves this thing the most, you want to learn about it. Of course, it. yeah. But he was so brilliant because he did the same thing. He wanted me to learn about art and love art. But he knew that what I loved the most were animals. Yeah. And so he taught me about art by showing me art that had animals in oh, it. Oh, that's, that's which such is, a great right? le so learning he under, tool. Right. Almost. He understood my love language. Yeah. And it's so funny. I, I found this really sweet essay he wrote about me. I just found it recently, but he wrote it about me when I was four years old called Genius in the Making, which was he was saying it sarcastically, all these funny things. And he wrote about who my favorite actors on television were. And my favorite actors were the whole cast of the Flintstones. Of course. Right. Yeah. And every animal. So yeah. Flipper or the Chimp and Ductari or whatever. <laughs> they were all, you know, it was all about the animals. And my dad said, well, and they fought. Allie, come here. And they, and there we go. And Hi, see, Allie. I'm still the same. Yes, come here. She wants to play. She's all, she's all wired. Oh, Yes. It's all about the big game here. She's like, well, we came to play. Why are you guys <laughs> yeah, talking? Exactly. Why this are you guys so talking? Boring. What's a podcast anyway? What is a podcast? And you're talking about animals and how much you love animals. And I'm trying to interject. <laughs> exactly. You're not listening to me. You're not listening. Go get it. Babe can't possibly pick that up, can he? He's tried. He does <laughs> sometimes. So. That's hilarious. She picks up every stick on the walk. That's genius. And we've made her day. She really thinks we came here for her. We have. And we have. Yeah, we right. have, of course. Totally. That's the number one priority. <laughs> That's right. So that was how you're, you're, you're kind of um, becoming acclimated with, with, with the art. Yeah. And going th through that. And that, I guess that is uh, kind of elementary. You look at these learning courses like a Rosetta Stone or something, they, they, or teaching a child. You know, this is, you just get it through in a way that they find it fun and accessible, right. like a Sesame Street. Right, yeah. exactly. There was a wonderful educator um, from Brazil named Paulo Freire. And many, uh, you know, developing nations had a very low literacy rate. And he figured out why. Because they would send people out with textbooks that they used in cities, right? And, um, and all of what they were trying to teach were, th were vocabulary words and ideas that were relevant to people who lived in cities, but they were sending them out to, you know, banana growers yeah, like out in the areas, Amazon, yeah. right? And what did they care about? The, the bus or the, there was no bus, you yeah. know, there was a dugout canoe. <laughs> and so he came out, up with this brilliant idea and he taught this technique and he would send university students out and he said, you go out and you live in in these communities you live with families and you figure out how to teach them and he gave them the techniques teach them how to read by using things that are relevant to them so of course if you're growing bananas and you want to get the best price for your bananas and you want to learn what the best you know whatever you need to do if there's a banana blight or whatever 
then you're motivated to learn how to communicate with people who are communicating through the written word yeah. um, or some, you need to read something. You learn how to do it because you're motivated because it's about bananas or dugout canoes or the cost of wood or whatever it is you're using. And so it's that- like It's accessible to them. Exactly. Yeah. And so the literacy rates went from like 10% to 90% yeah. in these countries. And he was brought all over the world to, to Africa, to Central America. And it, his book's called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's a wonderful book. It transformed my life. And it's exactly that. We learn anything by having it make sense to us. Yeah. You know, I never knew what math was about. I had no idea. And now I do all my own bookkeeping. Wow. You know, That's and an if somebody had, yeah. had explained to me, you know, they tried to say, you'll need math later on. And I thought, yeah, no, I won't. Yeah. Right? I won't need math later on. But of course I did. Yeah. And once I understood that numbers were logical and I like logic, like I like logic puzzles, then I could make sense of it. But the areas of math that make no sense to me, like why do I need to know why X equals whatever in yeah. some equation? Like I look at that and it's like Swahili. Yeah. Somebody who understands math, you know, looks at it and it makes perfect sense yeah, to them. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, we yeah. understand the world by by being able to filter it through through who we are and that is you know again this idea of the truest self right we teach people uh, you know to become someone they're not and then to learn as that person they're not yeah but if we could one of the fa my favorite things I taught for years was learning how to listen to who my students were ah. and by listening to who they were make something interesting to them I had four boys who wouldn't read they were perfectly bright they just were bored out of their minds reading what I was having them read and we had this slot in the schedule so I was able to T take these four boys and have a literature class and I only taught books that I thought 13-year-old, 14-year-old boys would like. Well, that's brilliant, though. So that, that, and yeah. and they, they, you know, we read Into the Wild. It was right after when Into the Wild. And, of course, they were f really into having that conversation. Like, yeah. why, would it, why would an 18-year-old boy decide to, you know, drop out of the society and do all this? And what did they think? And we had amazing conversations. They showed up every day ready mm. to have a conversation having read. And I said, you know, sometimes they would say... Um, I'd say to them, because they, they were conditioned to say this, well, what did you think of the book? I don't know, they would say. <laughs> and I would say, I'm sure that's not true. So let's have a rule in this class. You can say anything. You can say, I hated it. You can say, I thought it was stupid. You can say all of that. But you cannot say, I don't know why. You have to say why. <laughs> and so that's what they learned. You know, They learned that if they were free to have any opinion they wanted, they just had to know why they had the opinion. Then all of a sudden, and that's something we're not taught either. You know, that it's not, it's okay, it's not okay to have an opinion unlike, you know, th the majority. Yeah. So, and that's why we're so divided as a country. Yeah. Because somebody's always going to be wrong and someone's always going to be right. And the bottom line is that's, you know, that's not going to get us anywhere. And people play into that. Exactly. Yeah. We get to that divisive place as opposed to being able to say, look, we need both sides here. Yeah. We need both sides because somewhere in the middle, there's something fruitful that's going to yeah. happen. You know, somebody saying you're right, I'm wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. We're just going to stay stuck. Yeah. That's what I find the pitfalls of social media where yeah. you just get on that and Everybody has a voice and everybody thinks, you know, they can just interject whatever they want and exactly. be horrible and mean and, oh, you know. Yeah. 
and, and that's another thing I liked about your book is that you you have it like uh, sprinkled in all these beautiful quotes from poets and mm. and authors and stuff, and, and it's 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 great grounding, you know, through everything, and you then relay it to what you're talking about specifically. Uh, well, you know, poets and authors, I, the reason I wanted to write a book in the first place is because when I was a little kid, you know, I didn't watch a lot of television. My parents were book people yeah. and they didn't want me to be one of those kids who was babysat by the television, but they would let me read whatever I wanted. So I read and read and read voraciously. And even now I will always read versus turn on something. And so uh, those books and those people in those books saved my life. You know, they helped me make sense of the world, and they still do. And I just wanted to be a part of that conversation yeah. with this book. For people who do need a lifeline, I wanted to be a lifeline. I wanted to be part of, you know, contributing if somebody's really concerned or worried or confused or lost. I wanted to be part of finding, finding you know, a lifeline, a way out. Yeah. Or a way in sometimes. Yeah, and I, I love the image you have about the wildflowers and how wildflowers grow. Uh, they always uh, grow best where the soil is disturbed, yeah. and that's great. An, uh, an idea of being able to, to, to make the best out of a situation or, you know, with the horribleness around you or yeah. whatever you're... Well, you know, the thing to me that started because I was on this road trip and I was having a miserable time and I looked out the road and I saw all these wildflowers blooming. I thought, oh, they're so beautiful. And then I realized that they weren't blooming someplace pretty. They were blooming by the side of the road. And in the mid 80s, when this was happening, the side of the road was covered with yeah. garbage. And I thought, oh, it's such a shame that they're blooming and there's all this litter around them. And I was talking to this forest ranger and he said, wildflowers grow best where the soil is disturbed. And I thought that is so interesting. And the more I began to think about it and I thought and I thought and I thought about it, I realized that that's actually where everything interesting happens. And so right now, you know, we're so divided as a world politically and ethnically and religiously and all of these things. And we, everybody's so entrenched, my way is right and their way is wrong or their way is, you know, it, it's always dualities, right? But I believe that there is a third way, that these two ideas that seemingly have nothing in common, when they push up against each other, they disturb the soil, and out of that disturbed soil, we can create something new. So instead of seeing that having two ways is wrong, having two ways actually creates a third space, and in that third space, new ideas can wildflower. Because the bottom line is, as we're witnessing with you know the whole world, if we keep talking about the same things in the same ways, no change is going to happen we have to find a new way and and that new way has to come out of what's disturbed yeah you know i mean you know it, to to talk about current events you know the fact that we have had what is it you know 28 or something school shootings yeah, yeah. in the first 45 days of a year that's crazy right so on the one hand people say you know we have a right to bear arms on the other hand people say every country that has banned weapons you know there have been no more mass school shootings and everyone agrees i don't think there is anyone whether they're in the gun lobby or they're vehemently anti you know anti-guns anti-violence i don't think anyone thinks that guns should be in schools of course 
period, the end. I think we can all agree yeah. that nobody believes that children should be shot in a place yeah. where they should feel safe. And so, so then you have these two different camps. How do you get to that place of agreeing? So what you have to do is be willing to say, okay, these two things are going to collide and collide and collide and collide, but somewhere there is this disturbance that is happening. And the disturbance, unfortunately, is happening in the schools yeah. where, where children are being shot. It's happening on the streets where innocent people are being shot. But the answer is not to say, okay, we have to find some compromise here and some compromise here. The answer is to to realize, you know, that our children are the ones that need to wildflower, that young people are the ones that need to wildflower, that communities need to be able to feel safe. So there has to be a whole new way of doing this. I don't know what that answer is. I have no idea what that answer is. I'm not, not an expert in either of those things. But Everybody who is and who has a vested opinion in what it should be needs to really let themselves crumble. There's this wonderful Rumi poem that became kind of a mantra for me. Be crumbled so that wildflowers can come up right where you are. You've been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. And to me, here's, you know, one side saying this is an amendment issue and another, you know, and another side saying this is a nonviolence issue. Whatever, you know, whatever the, the two different, you know, camps are on anything, we all have to be willing to be crumbled. And if watching children getting shot isn't going to crumble us, nothing's going yeah. to, you know? So how can we be crumbled enough to be willing to try something different? All of us be willing to say, okay, you know, I don't know what the idea is, but it has to be different. Yeah. We've been so stony in our two different ideas and nothing grows on stone. Uh, you know, so how do we get to a place where we're willing to do something different, where we're willing to surrender and say, look, the way it is now isn't working? Yeah, it reminds me of a um, Jim Morrison quote from one of his songs. He says, you know, you, we have to find a new answer instead of a way. Yes. And um, that's another thing I keep bringing your book up, but I like where no matter what uh, political stripe you are, no matter what denomination, it's 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 inviting to everybody. Yeah, you know? because the what I've learned is, you know, uh, when I was younger, I was very active and, and politically active in social justice. And I ended up feeling like, you know, I didn't like the feeling that I was getting so entrenched that my way was the right way. You know, how can I say that? How can I, you know, I love dogs. So from my perspective, to eat a dog is horrendous. But I eat a cow. Yeah. You know, and cows are v sweet animals. Pigs are incredibly intelligent. Yeah, my animals. wife's a vegan, and that's what she says. She, right. She was a vegetarian for most of her life. She became a vegan like five years ago, and that's what she says. If, you know, it's a social condition of, you know, you, you won't eat a dog or a cat per se, but. You know, you'll eat a cow or a pig. You right. know, there's, there's, you know, and and in Spain, the most delicious food I ate in Spain was octopus over and over again. And octopus are incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Incredibly intelligent. You can see them opening jars. Yes, and, I mean, know, unbelievable, yeah. and they problem solve. It's yeah. amazing, right? And so I think to myself, who are you kidding? So you're going to go over to South Korea and you're going to say, you are wrong to eat dogs? So what do I do? First of all, where am I willing to be crumbled to try something different, you know, to look at my way? I mean, it is that thing, you know, you can't cast the first stone if you're, you know, how can I say my way is right? I think that's what people nowadays, that's the problem or the... The, the obstacle is people are so quick to cast aspersions, yes. be judgmental, and and people as accessible we are through technology or, or 
these devices, we are not listening. Right. We're not listening. And the thing is, we have to be willing to see that, look, there is a lot of disturbed soil here. And, you know, that disturbed soil is either going to turn into some kind of a holocaust um, with, you know, a lot more horrible things happening or something has to give. Yeah. Something has to give. You know, at, at some point... You know, the, what does it take for us to be willing to change the things that are so devastating in this world? And it takes all of us being willing to crumble, being willing to surrender, being willing to try something different. And that's really what the way of being lost was for me. You know, I'm not advocating that, you know, my book isn't, hey, everybody go out there, sell everything you own, <laughs> you know, hit the road, try and figure it out. Because it's not like this has provided me with a million answers. But what I can say is it's provided me with a million questions. Yeah. And those questions are really fruitful for me. Every day I have to ask myself the hard questions and say, how can I show up and learn how to listen to others, listen from my heart, be a better person in the world, give back more? And I started this because almost uh, seven years ago, exactly, I looked myself in the mirror and I thought, you're doing everything right and you're miserable. And now... That's something I I think a lot of people have in this world. Yes, right. You have the perfect job. You've done what society's told you to do. And then you're, why aren't I happy? Why aren't I happy? And so, uh, you know, my my bank account is way less happy than it used to be. (laughs) Um, I don't... I have way less of a sense of certainty about what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. But I will not look at myself in the mirror at the end of this 10-year stint, which is what I said to myself. I don't want to be here 10 years from now feeling the same thing. I won't because I know that I've showed up to my life and I'm continuing to show up to the hard stuff. And you have to ask yourself questions every day. You know, I I travel with this little dog and every day I have to say, what's the best thing for her? Yeah. You know, it's not just like she has to come with me so that I feel better. Sometimes, sometimes it's better for her to, you know, stay where she is. Yeah. So every day I have to ask myself the hard questions and, and what are we going to do today, Al? That's our question. <laughs> I think that's why I found the book so accessible <laughs> is that it's just... You're so truthful in it, and you're and you, you do put yourself on the line there, and it's so brave. Mm. And then it really is for people. It, it is so accessible for people who have these. Everybody seems to have these core problems, and it, you're right. getting past the, you know that when. For me and my friends, we talk a lot about when you hit like my age in, in your 30s or late 30s, you start thinking about like, you know, happiness and you start to have like that midlife crisis. Right. And you think about like, I always look about my parents, my father, my mother was a nurse. My father worked on the railroad for 40 years. I'm like, were they happy what they were doing? Just right. doing that. And then, well, they had a family. They took, so and then you start, well, what's my responsibility versus making myself happier, right. being honest and truthful to, to myself. And that's why I found uh, the way of being lost so interesting and just so engaging because mm. you put yourself on the line and you did that. And that, that's so accessible for people. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, no, you know, it's, 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 it's just so amazing, you know, and I found it so, so nice. Um, while I have you here, I'd love to ask you about um, a person who I don't think anybody sadly knows unless they're in the field anymore henry dreyfus oh yeah yeah I, I, when i the dinner we had at sardi's I, I i i talked your head off for like 10 minutes about him because you knew him briefly yes and i'm so fascinated by him I'm, i don't know if anybody knows who he is but i have his book the man in the brown suit and uh you know uh this is just in the weeds because who else can i ever talk to you about it but yeah no you, he was a very special person to yeah me. so henry dreyfus it's a it's a really interesting thing there was he's no so sense. influential yes i i give a talk called from lipsticks to locomotives and it's about how industrial design created the view of america that really it ha- was the the 
biggest form of advertisement for American as a superpower because industrial design didn't exist until the late 20s. Yeah. And there was no, so basically companies would put things out and they sold it based on its function, not its form. And some of these things were ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so people, you know, they wanted their thing that they were going to have in their house to look good. They were. It was great that it kept the, you know, the the food cold or whatever but it was ugly it didn't go with their decor so the field of industrial design was essentially created by four men and one of them was Henry Dreyfus and probably the two most famous men were Raymond Lowy who was a Frenchman who came to the United States and Henry Dreyfus and they were two complete and polar opposites Raymond Lowy was the showman and he he designed um, like the Coca-Cola bottle and Air Force One and a lot of you know cars with fins yeah and he was a, a showman and uh <laughs> and Henry Dreyfus was somebody who was very much about the form following the function. Yeah. And he was a pragmatist and he ate at the same table in the oak room of the plaza every single day. He always wore a brown suit. He uh he married uh, a woman named Doris who was his wife and business partner kind of like Charles and Ray Eames yeah. and and he uh designed the John Deere tractor, the Bell thermostat, the princess phone, the Polaroid camera, the 20th Century Limited, which is widely regarded as one of the most beautiful the locomotives, trains. Yeah. 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 There's so many Ever. things that he designed from, like you said, the princess phone to, yeah. the, to the regular, I forget, the bigger phone. Yeah. Like you said, the tractor. I mean, uh, the, the thermostat the that thermostat, we know and love yeah. that we see now that I guess Nest is almost yes. you know, copying. It's just all these things that we, we deal with on a daily basis. Yes. Or for almost a century haven't changed because he was so innovating yeah, by his design. My favorite story about Henry Dreyfus, so so my dad and mom were great friends with him. Yeah. And we spent every Thanksgiving with them. His children were much older than I was. My parents and, and Doris and Henry were close-ish in age. They were older. But his children's children were my age. So his grandchildren were my age, and I was sort of regarded as one of the grandchildren. We would spend every Thanksgiving together. They were the first adults that ever asked me to call them by their first names, call us Henry and Doris, you know. Hi. Hi, babe. Hey, babe. Hi. Babe's so, paying Kaylee over to say, what's hi, going on? Hi. Hi. You are so good looking. And so... um they would teach us something every Thanksgiving. You know, one year he made uh, giraffes and, and different animals from Africa out of, you know, paper bags from a market. It was really, really cool. And so I, I loved learning from him. And so when the Cooper Hewitt, it, as it was called in those days, did the show, Man in the Brown Suit, I immediately went and I bought the book and I learned everything I could about him. And I and I began um, talking about the importance of industrial design as sort of the message of what America is as it was conveyed to the world but my favorite Henry Dreyfus story because it's something I've learned from he was uh, this company a movie theater company put in this big deluxe movie palace in some farm town in like you know Iowa or something yeah and it was gorgeous Peoria. everything you know right <laughs> yeah. gorgeous gorgeous and nobody was going they were all going to the old movie theater and here they put all this money creating this movie palace and no one was going and so they hired Henry Dreyfus as a very young man to go out and figure out what they'd done wrong and so Henry Dreyfus decided that what he would do is just go and observe. So he went and he just positioned himself outside the movie theater and he was watching the people who were walking down the street of this town. And they were all, you know, people who were working people, most of whom were farmers who'd come into town. So they were people like wearing their overalls and their work boots or whatever. And he watched that as they 
got to the movie theater, they would walk around. The new one. The new one, the fancy one. They would walk around the red carpet so as not to dirty it. Wow. And what he told them was they had not understood who their audience was. They'd made it too fancy. So they immediately changed the carpet, and then everybody flocked to the movie theater. They loved the comfort. They loved the beauty. They didn't want to sully it. You know, it's like they were from that era where people put plastic on their living room sofa (laughs) so that you didn't ruin the good furniture, and then nobody ever sat in it, right? Or we all, you know, now I think people have kitchen tables more than dining room tables, but those formal dining room tables that nobody ever eats at, right? So he understood that. And from Yeah, and from then on, that was his principle of design, that design has to be for the end user. You know, it has to be something that reflects who is using it. It's so fascinating, and I find him so influential. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just, it's really, it's one of those things where you could take a filmmaker or, uh, you know, you're talking, say, the Beatles who influenced us. Uh, a guy like him really influenced every person's life, and we yeah. don't realize even today how we're still touched by him. Yeah. But I just, because you were here, I wanted to just, yeah, to, just no, I geek him. out for a minute. And there's, it's actually a really beautiful story. So at the end of his life, his wife Doris was diagnosed with cancer, yeah. and they realized it was terminal, and they committed suicide together. Yeah. Uh, they killed, you know, they, they did it in a garage. In carbon oxide. Carbon, yeah. In the car. In the car. And of course, he was a designer, so he figured out how to make it as, you know, and they were together. And I remember that we were in, uh, I was sitting in the back of my parents' car with my parents, and I saw this newspaper clipping that said, and I was, I think, 10 years old, and it said something about Henry and Doris. And I remember um, reading it and reading that. And then my mother saw me reading it, and she saw, did she said, did you read that? And I said, no, like I lied, because I knew she wouldn't want me to know that. And so then she told me that they had died, but she didn't tell me how, but I knew because I'd read it. Yeah. And I think she thought it would freak me out that some that people would kill themselves. But, you know, there's very few people you meet, very few couples you meet who you really get a sense of the deep love and partnership that they have. Yeah, one can't survive. They're almost yeah. one being and after a while. And I knew that. Yeah. And so to me, I, it didn't scare me at all because it felt true for them. Yeah. It was like they knew who they were and who, you know, it wasn't like he didn't have years more that he could have contributed to the world of design, but he knew who he was and he knew what he needed to do. And and the fact that he did that with her, it's again, not like that's what I'm advocating that people should do, yeah. but it was right for them. It's, it's interesting because I've talked to... Um, the, the famed pathologist Michael Bodden a lot mm. and he talked about um, I guess in the early 70s and it could be that generation that you would get a lot of deaths who elderly people one would would be diagnosed with a terminal illness right. and uh, one way they would do it would be uh, over the bathroom door and they'd both you know, oh, wow. Almost with a, hang themselves and use each other's weight. Wow. You know, he would say that was a thing. Oh, my gosh, I never heard that. You know, wow. and, and, and I relate to him the, the Dreyfus story because I had known that from reading it in your Vincent Price, your father's yeah. biography. And it just, I guess, you know, me, I don't know if that was, you know, if that was a thing, but do you understand that some people are so connected? You yeah. know, or you always hear, or you hear the story that, like, you know, somebody's passed away and then the other one passes away within a day or hours. A- absolutely, you know? yes. I read this really interesting story. Uh, the, his obituary was in the Times, oh, maybe about a month ago, Eugene Thaw, okay. who was this amazing art collector. And uh, and Claire was his wife. I knew both of them. Amazing. He wrote the Jackson Pollock, you know, catalog raisonné. So she died in June and he died in January. 
And the reason he stayed alive, it was clear to everybody, is because he had a show at the Morgan Library. Wow. And she and he were, you know, he became a collector in many ways because of her. But before that, he'd been an art dealer, an art historian, and they were so connected. And so he literally died like two weeks before his show ended because his whole goal was to get that show up because it was a tribute to them and their life as collectors. And so... It's amazing it, when you hear stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and you that know you can, it was true. Yeah. You know, you know that he, he didn't really want to stay alive that much longer, but he was going to do that because that was about them. And once that was done, he wanted to join and, her. And that touches me. I had a very good friend of mine who, uh, whose father passed away, and you always hear he had pancreatic cancer, that there's always that last bout of energy mm. and you talked about that with your when your mother passed yeah. she called you or yeah. even with your father yep the day before you know it's, yeah. and it's it's interesting that or like we were just talking about people who get the energy to to, to go on for a purpose right they're able to do that and then then you know and it's right. uh i don't know what kind of road we're going down but yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's just very it's fascinating thing. yeah well people's stories you know i think the thing is everybody's always so concerned you know parents are always so concerned that their children have the right messages but to me you know the the most right message we can give to any child is that when people are doing what's authentic to them um there's something you know really true that goes out into the world. And as that goes a message. back to the book. Yeah. yeah, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself, and I think people, you know, worry about what that is. Well, is somebody who's inflicting violence in some way or doing something horrible? Is that, is, is that being true to themselves? N- no, you know, uh, one of the gifts of becoming involved with the horror community is these people who many people think of are, as scary because they're pierced and tattooed and have spiky hair and you know they look like goths and they mm. you they know, come to the convention co- in cosplay co- dressed right, up co- or yeah, say. scary things yeah. right and you know to me the horror fans are the gentlest people in the world and to come to the conventions is a way of um, recognizing that we all carry around these scary, horrible things inside of us. And when we have, you know, my dad used to say that horror movies were a way of, of sort of a, having catharsis for people, a way of getting out um, in the safety of a dark room, the things that they can't say in life. You know, today, every parent in America has to send their child to school. Yeah. And nobody feels safe yeah. anymore. No one feels safe It's anymore. so weird even for me growing up. Uh, I was a product of the 80s. And to think that when I was little, I'd get on a bike with my friend. I'd get home from school. My parents say, you'd be home by dark or dinner. Right. And uh, we'd go out and we'd, you know, no cell phones, no nothing. We'd go out and they would just hope we'd get home by time. And, right. You know, and now I could, ne- and no helmets, you right. know, no pads, you know. Right. You, you know, you'd, you'd fall off a bike, you'd mess yourself up and, you know. Right. And now it's it just seems so like, you know, I talk to people who, have children and they're like they don't even go out like they have to organize play dates yeah and the kids hang out inside and they don't yeah. go out or they're just even when they're inside they're on the computer or yeah. on the internet on video games and it's so odd just even like you're saying this it's there's so much trepidation to just let your kid out yes. and go to the park or, or yes. you know just just the i don't know the evil or i i would think that it's always been here but i don't know it's suddenly but it's so much it's so much more us. prevalent yeah. right and everybody's so scared and so you know the thing is that i feel like we're not there's no place for us to put that fear so everybody squelches it yeah you know and and you read about uh, 
my friend who I'm staying with works with foster kids here in, well, in Yonkers. And, you know, Yonkers is one of the worst counties in, in New York. I think it is the worst county in New York State for, you know, horrendous things happening yeah, in the child Yeah, because it's so big. System. There's, yeah, there's yeah. nice areas and there's bad areas. Yeah. yeah. And so the stories, you know, that, that she has to hear and deal with are just things that are unimaginable. And, and you know, and yet... There's whole sectors of the population that this is every day of their lives. And at some point, you know, how can we create a world where there's a safe place for everybody to be able to deal with all the things that they're scared of? And that's why we're all, every movie that's out there is about something scary and apocalyptic. Because in a way, that's what's happening in the world. I mean, we have a soap opera on TV that's about zombies. Right. It's it's just, I remember in the 80s, horror movies for me were scary, but then there was like the almost X-rated, like the zombie movies, the George Romero movies. My parents won't let me rent that. It's so graphic. It's so bloody. And then you look now, it's that's commonplace on television. Right. You know, you can, you can, your child can turn on cable and watch that. So it's, it's, yeah, that's so surprising. Um, And your 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 favorite f- movie of your father's is Laura. Yeah, yeah, I know. and, and I love Otto Preminger. Amazing, you yeah. know, it, it's such a great film. Yeah, um, and uh, I do. I, I find myself enjoying a lot of the B sides. Like I mean, he's great in, in your father and horror movies, but just there's so many other movies that he was doing, like in the in the late forties and stuff and fifties that are just so yeah. amazing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love him in Ten Commandments. You know, him and Edward G. Robinson and the, yeah. the, the dichotomy there. Such you know, a, I know ridiculous casting, right? Like either of them lo- could ever be Egyptian. Well, I thought he was great, but it was fabulous, <laughs> exactly, right? He cuts the mustache off, and right. fine, You know, yeah. And I um, I know. Um, you and uh, your father and Edward G. Robinson had a, a great relationship, mm-hmm. and it's there's so much I'd love to talk to you about uh, about him, but we're running out of time. Um, uh, I also like see it's me. It's, it's so weird. It's like I like to listen to I ha- I've found his uh, cooking tutorials, like the the Beverly Hills Cookbook series. Yeah, and there's nothing more like cathartic for me than just to like put him on on my commute. You know, I'll walk to the train, get on the train, and he'll tell me how to like do this or that. And <laughs> like, oh, you know, that's you know, or have ragu sauces, you that. know. And it's just so it's just so funny or just even even the the uh era of I guess uh in the seventies of him doing those like uh occult uh, you know, uh, horror recordings, right. the, the, the witches and the, yes, you know, goblins and ghouls. Yeah, and yeah. it's so good. And it's just so, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I'm such a fan of old radio and, uh, to hear like all the old suspense and this, him on the saint, uh, and just all those things that it, it seems like particularly old radio, um, old-fashioned radio seems just like such a forgotten art a theater of the mind yeah and those old plays that are so accessible you can find them on youtube or whatever the you know of, of, of him doing like three skeleton key or or the dragon wick or uh, angel street which turns into gaslight you know just hearing those dramatizations you know you close your eyes and it's it's better than any audiobook you'll ever no, read you know or even true. movie you know so my dad always said that our imaginations are, are so much richer than anything we ever can see. Yeah. You know, of course, what we see is, is you know, the product of someone's imagination. But even then, yeah. we take it another level up. Of so. course. And uh, before we go, I know uh, he did a, a, a magnificent play of Oscar Wilde, Diversion yes. of the Lights. And there is a bootleg copy of it out there, audio. You can listen audio, to it. Audio, yes. And I've listened to it, and it's so amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a crappy recording, but if you're used to, like, listening to bootleg concert shows like I have growing up, it's perfectly fine, and just like even like him like doing like the uh, the Harlot House, you know, yeah. and just all it's and, and that 
that play is so amazing. And I like how you talked about at the time him doing it. It was just so groundbreaking and so yeah, you know. what an amazing. It was the best thing I ever saw him do. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah, no, he. You know, I feel I feel so fortunate. It's a, you know, it's it's such a gift to have grown up with a father who, who gave me so so much, but. I also grew up with a mother and a stepmother who gave me so much as well, you know, in, in maybe a, needed a little more unpacking, Yeah. but still such a, I was very fortunate and I feel, I, I don't think I could be intentionally homeless if I didn't have such a rich foundation, Yeah. you know, I, I the, this multi-layered foundation of, of so many things that they gave me. And, um, and so I feel really, really grateful that um, I have to take a picture of you. I feel grateful for the parents that I I have. I have to take this picture because my m- the podcast interview. <laughs> yeah, I've got Allie. Yes. Oh, look at her. She's Allie. tired now. She's 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 run herself out. She's like, we're done. We're gonna need naps soon. <laughs> um, do you ever see yourself? And I don't want to call it like an exorcism, but you kind of like um, you know like you said, unpacking the, the feelings of, of your mother and coming to terms with stuff right. or your father and just everything going on. And, and do you f- ever see yourself um, maybe putting your roots down again sometime soon? Or, I mean, you're, tr- you're traveling, but... You know, I thought I would know what I wanted to do at the end of the two years and the two years will be over in May, but I know I'm going to be on the road yeah. for the, this whole year. And you've embraced um, that. This, yeah, yeah, you know, and I have no idea really what I'm doing, <laughs> uh, but I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, I was thinking about this because so many of us grow up Good thinking girl. that there's some sort of certainty um, that if we do something the right way, if we get the right job, if we belong to the right political party, if we belong to the right church, if we belong to the you know right uh, club or whatever, that we'll have this sense of safety. And yet, to me, the greatest sense of safety has come, and the greatest sense of peace has come from embracing the mystery. And I feel so much more free and more at peace being able to say, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know is so empowering because really, at the end of the day, like what do we really know you know the things that we know are are very concrete but they're not certain we know we know how to love yeah but what that's going to look like we don't know right only the future is certain yes (laughs) exactly well thank you so much for stopping by and sleeping over thank you thank (laughs) you for inviting me and Allie to the sleepover Allie did you have fun at the sleepover (laughs) yes she (laughs) She did she had so much fun at the sleepover and she's going to take all the toys with her home and all that (laughs) I want to see her play with the little (laughs) (laughs) with the the cat thing Uh, we'd love to have you back soon I'd love to talk to you more and bore you uh, at nauseum about your father I would love it so thank you so much and Allie thank you so much you want to say thank you say thanks say thank you can you say thanks? There we go. <laughs>